Hello, and welcome to the Hub Systems Podcast, the voice of Man's Model Moments, the blog of the various ramblings on the modelling and gaming antics of my son and I. My name is Alex Mann, and with me is my son, Oscar. Hello. Now, before we start, a short explanation is in order, because our last episode was way back in July, and we've had a good few months since then, and it's now coming up to Christmas. So since our last podcast, Spartan Games has folded, its IP has been purchased by War Cradle Studios, and from our side, we've been really busy with our real lives, so there just hasn't really been a chance for us to get an episode together. Now, we have a really good reason to bring you this episode, because we have a special guest joining us, and that is Stuart from War Cradle Studios. Hello. Can you hear me all there? Indeed we can. Marvellous. So, as it's your first time on the show, Stuart, give us a, a brief gamer bio of yourself. A brief gamer bio, okay. Um, so, I've been gaming off and on ooh, since I was since I was quite small. Um, the, the first proper sort of proper gaming, I suppose, if we you know, if we're not counting things like Monopoly and what have you, would have been playing Hero Quest um, with my dad and my brother um, many many moons ago, and. Uh, so I really enjoyed, um, obviously, being the, the younger party to the, to, to the whole process. I enjoyed it being something that I could do with my dad. And, and he, yeah, obviously, he, he had something that he could enjoy with my brother and myself. But um, as I got older, it was that kind of that connection, that way that it um, that gaming kind of crosses over the um, crosses over the generations and, and can and can really kind of surprise and excite um, sort of people of all ages, I suppose. Uh, that that really started to um, start to appeal to me because really my gaming grew as grew as I grew. So as I matured, the type of gaming that I got into, I say matured. That's in a very loosest of senses. I'm a man who <laughs> who earns a living from toy soldiers, so let's not let's not get too crazy. But um, but as, certainly as I grew up, my my interests um, sort of developed and became a little bit more nuanced. Um, gaming was still there and you know i sort of graduated on from the basics of sort of mb games type stuff into sort of things like role play and warhammer 40,000 and yeah all sorts of all sorts of other games um even a bit of D and uh, uh and um vampire there's a vampire card game many years ago called jihad which I, they probably can't call that but anymore yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. taken on a different meaning now it, it, really. it has yeah no no it's uh no, but fantastic um fantastic times and really gaming's kind of been with me um all my life no matter what i mean like everybody i suppose you go through all sorts of different changes and places and throws different things at you but there's always been gaming in some form or another with different groups and you know and in different forms um you know at every stage of the way and i think now where I am, where as, as my job I'm involved in in gaming, it's it's given me that that way of looking back and sort of seeing and accepting as well that the kind of games I play and I'm interested in and I enjoy now aren't necessarily the kind of things I was into and interested in, or certainly not you know 30 years ago or whatever. But um, but <laughs> but also that there are so many different gamers, there are so many different um, interests that people have. And, and really, though I don't think you can create a game that appeals to everybody, I think having games that um, that can appeal to a lot of people and that you're not necessarily telling people how to enjoy their games, that really the games are there for people to, or almost like a, a very rich toolbox of stuff where people can take it and and have play it the way they want to play it and, and enjoy it the way they want to enjoy it. Um, I, I think that's... 
that's really the kind of the um, the grail. That's the uh, that's that's the sweet spot in gaming. I don't think anybody's quite there yet. You know, certainly, we're not. But but that is a uh, there is an attitude that we have and, and something that we're trying to do to create stuff that just gets people excited and playing games and and not telling them how their games should be played, um, but hopefully allowing people to uh, make their own path in things. Excellent. Look at that. That's beautiful. That is... <laughs> yeah, very poetic. It's truly what gaming is about, though, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Well, we think so. Okay. As we've been away a long time, it's only polite if we give a quick summary of what's been happening in our real lives over the past five months. From our side, Oscar, my neighbour and I, put a new set of stairs in our house. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Which... Is yeah, it is more complicated than it sounds. And putting it? stairs in doesn't sound easy. I mean, no. But when you realise that our stairs, it's a double winder staircase. Yeah, our house was made in about seventeen hundred and forty something or other. So nothing straight. So yeah, right angle is more of a concept than a, than a physical reality, which, which does make it interesting. <laughs> so that took us. So three it days. took us a long. Well, it took three solid days, and then about four weeks of fallout from it to, mm-hmm. wow. to get it back. Yeah, that, that disrupted things quite a lot. So, apart from that, I've done a, a lot of 3D printing over the last uh, few months, especially of sculpts of a, a very talented 3D designer named Duncan Shadow Luca, because we're going to see if we can get him on a, a future episode as well. His stuff is truly, is like properly really, miniature quality. Really nice stuff. So. Yeah, so we, uh, we sponsor him on Patreon, and he's got some really nice stuff. What kind of stuff is it? Uh, it's really varied. He does some um, very 40k-esque tanks, uh, which I'm not a huge fan of, but that's just because I don't really like 40k tanks. Uh, he does a lot of sort of fantasy demons, and he also does sci-fi sort of sculpts and Cthulhu-esque creatures. A, a real varied bag of stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, it's insane. Some hill giants as well, sort of D&D things. Cool, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Speaking of D&D, we've been... We've lot. done a lot of D&D yeah. recently. Coming to the end of Tyranny of Dragons. Which is mental. What's your uh, What's your favourite um, realm within uh, within D&D? Are you, a, are you an Eberron kind of uh, kind of guys? Or are you uh, you Forgotten Realms? Or what, what kind of D&D do you guys do? We're Forgotten Realms. We're on the yeah. Sword Coast. But we were thinking of doing that really hard thing. Oh, we were thinking of doing a Dark Sun campaign. Yeah. <laughs> But then we decided that actually the fantasy world should be a bit more fun than reality. So. Yeah, because yeah. Dark Sun's metal is really rare, isn't it? Which yeah. basically means you everyone's fighting with quarterstaffs. And bits of bone and stone armour and stuff. Yeah. And then I'm playing in Curse of Strahd with my gnome wizard, mm. who managed to kill 23 things in the last fight. You say that, they were a little... They were little, but he still managed to... I'm not, I, you know, you don't get very many chances when a wizard at fourth level can kill 23 things in one battle. I guess my ninth level warlock killed one thing <laughs> last time. <laughs> yeah, and often it's members of the party. What about you? What round do you play, Stuart? Where I, um, I do Eberron... Well, I used to do Eberron. Um, so the, um, the kind of the slightly steampunky um, with the warforged and the um, uh, floating okay. cities and all that kind of stuff. I quite enjoy that with the skyships and what have you. No. I don't get to roleplay nearly as much as I used to, which is a crushing, crushing disappointment. Uh, and certainly my 19-year-old my self would be very disapproving of my 39-year-old self. <laughs> I've let my side down really badly. <laughs> like you, you let yourself down, you let D&D down. Oh, it's just terrible. <laughs> yeah, there are, good, 
they're a gift going out there un, unscourged at the moment and it's um yeah it's all my fault <laughs> oscar's also been uh, we've been brainstorming for your campaign as yeah because well. i'm at, i've made my own campaign for a group of four of my friends Cool. Just it, sort of Cthulhu. Yeah, it started off like really cool, great ideas. It's just really hard now. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, just if anyone is having the stupid idea of making their own campaign, just make sure at least half of it's done before you start, because literally <laughs> there are a couple of weeks where you actually have to sit me down and say, "Stop doing D and D." Because you need to work. Yes, because you have your A levels. Um, but the what's, what's quite what's quite a good way, actually, if you in terms of campaigns and just ideas, what you can do, which I think is um, is quite it, it's quite good fun to, to play with, is if you take an existing uh, TV show or a something like that, and ideally something sci-fi. Yeah. But what you do is you reinvent it uh, through the lens of D and D. So, for example, you could do. I don't know, you could do, um, uh, take Babylon 5, for example, where you work out who your fantasy equivalent of Mimbari and the Narn and, and so on are, and then you create a, you create a city that's a, like a, a meeting point. The city's been founded as a kind of a meeting point for all of these various nations to, um, sort their problems out through peace. But then you've got all the very, but it could be like a, uh, put it near a, uh, a coast or put it on a you could even put it on like an island and that the whole city could just be the island and then all yeah. around it you can have the various warships and things from the from the various nations and so essentially you start to adapt the the setting of babylon 5 but because you've you've spent all the time kind of reinventing it and reworking it as a as a essentially a fantasy location um the, the stories just start to start to flow and and as a you know if you're running it you get a perverse pleasure in kind of <laughs> the, the story seeds might start off as a, a you know a potentially a well-known story, but obviously you, you, the players have got complete agency to do that what they want, really so they idea. then take it in a fantastic direction. DS Nine is quite a good one because you could do Deep Space Nine could be like an old um, again you could take like the Gith it could be an old Gith um, for, uh, an old Gith mining um, um, mining town or what have you um, that is. That's been taken over by um, I don't know some knightly order or whatever who are trying to be like paragons of peace and peace and harmony throughout the known realms and what have you. And the um, but obviously the Gith are returning. Um, they're uh, the uh, they're, they're they're ever present at the at the fringes. But there could be a waterfall, and behind the waterfall could actually be a um, a portal to a uh, another realm or what have you. So again, you just you're just taking the concepts of um, you're taking the concepts of a, of a TV show like Star Trek or Deep Space Nine or, or whatever it is, but you're reinventing it, and you the creativity comes in kind of well, what could this concept be in in this setting in this in this world? And it's um, yeah, I, I, it, it can take your mind to quite interesting places. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the Dominion now as a, a group of mind flayers. It's yeah, really... why not? Absolutely. I was just thinking of you know, long five to like the shadow as like demons or something because that's a very yeah, easy. Yeah, way to do. yeah. We've been there. We've been there since the beginning, and actually, yeah. And, and you can and it and what's great is it in some ways it lets you and that's what's good about the different realms in um, the different settings for D and D is a lot of them take the same races, but they they give them a fresh spin or a different take on them. And so actually, so if you if you try, if you took demons, but actually you applied the shadow idea to it, and that, so that they aren't necessarily, you know, they're obviously destructive, but they're not necessarily 
outright evil because they just believe in helping the, the younger races through conflict and chaos, basically. <laughs> Whereas the, you know, the others that you thought like you more, you know, your Eternals, your Angels, or whatever they would be, that would be like the Vorlons. Yeah, but that's fine. But they believe in rigidity and in things must be done the way they have always been done, and there is no, um, you know, you can only do what effectively they they permit, and that's how and that's how the races will continue. And yeah, that the ideology is. And, and suddenly you're looking at angels and demons or whatever in a in a totally different way to how you would have uh, otherwise expect you know encountered them in a in a normal D and D setting. And then it just becomes something completely different to the actual thing that you're kind of I want to say copying. Yeah, well, you're being inspi- <laughs> you're being inspired by it, but exactly, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because because actually once you take that as the initial concept and then you start to spin it, and particularly once players get involved, because nothing mm. ruins a, a good storyline like putting yeah. a bunch of players in it. Oh my god, and, yeah, and, and suddenly. <laughs> You're like going, oh, OK, so really, if this were B5 and scripted, we should now be getting to Sheridan on Zaha Doom. But actually, yeah, but no, the, no, pissing around in a yeah, tavern or something. <laughs> Sheridan equivalent, he's, you know, he, he, he stabbed the Delenn equivalent, you know, like that, <laughs> three, three months ago. And, and, and he's now, in fact, he's, or, or his wife came back from the dead and he thought, yeah, cool. This is she's the love of my life. This is the woman I'm going to be with. <laughs> yeah. So it, it totally, totally uh, changes things. And that's, I think that's exciting. Plus you also don't have to inexplicably lose your lead after the first season and uh, have to come up with some <laughs> nonsense with, with all your, all your long-term plot threads having to be uh, rejigged later on. So yeah, it's good. You don't have to do a Dallas and make it all a dream. <laughs> yeah. That, that also works. Well, with my adventure, like I was, I had it ready and as they start in like a little town, and um, I was expecting them to just honestly just go through it so quickly. You know, I, I got it briefly out. I they spent probably won't do any. They spent six hours soon. in the town. I don't like. I, I think they spent two hours in one tavern, but I didn't. They they robbed the barkeep. Um, this, like, oh my god! How did you not expect that with your friends? <laughs> well, now I just expect the worst. So. <laughs> so we've done quite a lot of that. We've also watched the second season of Stranger Things, which is very good. And now we've actually gone back and watched the first season with the whole family. Which I do have to say, I prefer the first season. And we're just starting again watching the second season again with the whole family. Yes. Uh, have you watched that, Stuart? Have you watched Stranger Things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I agree. I agree with Oscar. I think the first season, but it's like this. Because Stranger Things was so... It wasn't, it wasn't different because actually it's... If anything, it is just riffing on loads of um, nostalgia. The older memories are uh, are in force. So, um, but yeah, it but it did it in such a clever way and such a kind of a, a really slick way that yeah. um, it did create something unique. And I, and as the second season, that difficult second album is always going to be is always going to be um, it, or would be impossible in some ways to um, to kind of um, beat that first season because in the first season everything was new. Um, yeah, so eleven is no longer surprising in season. You know, in the second season, we've seen the demigorgon, so little demigorgons are less, you know, less impressive. They're still cool, but they're less impressive, and, oh, yeah. and so on and so on. So there's, the shadow monster's good. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's, there's brilliant stuff in it, and I thoroughly enjoyed the second season, and I'm, I will thoroughly enjoy the third season. <laughs> but it's like, um, I mean, certainly it's not like. Um, uh, True Detective, where the first season was brilliant and the second season was dire. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's but but I agree. The second season was good, but not um, nowhere near as kind of 
captivating as I thought the first season was. Did anyone else find Eleven's storyline in season two just actually kind of pointless? Like the second to last episode was pointless completely. Oh, you're such a grouch. Drew, she goes to the city. You're all beyond your years. And then just goes back. Nothing changes. (laughs) You're, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm assuming um, that it's uh, setting the scene for season three. Three, yeah, yeah. So we've also ticked off quite a few films over the over the summer and autumn. Actually, Rick and Morty inspired us to watch some. So I've, I've Cone, wanted though, to watch we? Rick and Morty for ages, but we've never had Netflix, and we got Netflix, so we binged three we've seasons. Never able to binge <laughs> all three series, seasons to, oh, together. So we did for it's me. so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many, so many good things about that show. But yes, yeah, so also that introduced us to the weirdness of David Cronenberg. From the episode, I'm where, just getting uh, like Rick Cronenberg's the world. Yeah, yeah. So we watched Naked Lunch and Existence, yeah. which were both scarring. Yeah, Existence <laughs> gets, in different I, ways. I think it's quite underrated. Um, it is, yeah. But uh, no, yeah, yeah, no, na- yeah. Na- naked Lunch is amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's not really much to say. It's just weird and cool. Yeah. <laughs> and the latest item on this list is, of course, and we will be spoiler-free but Star Wars The Last Jedi. Have you seen that, Stuart? I have. What did you think? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I Yes, there are plot holes. It's a Star Wars film. There are plot holes in all of the Star Wars films. Um, there are plot points that kind of go... They don't go nowhere. I mean, I believe that the characters, when they embark on particular parts of the story, thought they were going to go somewhere, even though, from a <laughs> point of view, they don't. Um, and... <laughs> It seemed as though it went out of its way, whereas uh, Episode 7 was criticised for being very predictable, very formulaic and kind of effectively re rehashing the, the classic trilogy. This seemed to go out of its way to still have very familiar elements, but to spin them off and resolve them in ways that oh, I, I certainly didn't expect when I was, um, when I was watching it. Uh, so much so that I think a lot of my... Um, I didn't come out raving about it. I thought it was good. I didn't come out raving in the same way that I actually did think that The Force Awakens was epic when I, uh, when I came out the cinema. Yeah, I thought I it was a really, really, really good film. Um, I didn't have quite that same level of euphoria after Last Jedi, but actually it made me want to watch it again more quickly, um, whereas yeah. Yeah, actually Force Awakens I didn't see again until I saw it on uh, Blu-ray. But... Uh, Last Jedi, I am going to go back into cinema to see it because I think a lot of my my my, my dampened ardour was because so many of the moments in the film didn't go the way, not just the way I had expected, but even the way it was building up in the film that you know it would go a particular way and then didn't, Um, and I think that challenged me in a way that I wasn't expecting from a Star Wars film because. Yeah, I, I I don't know whether I think having a little bit more fan service. So a couple of the moments, particularly maybe the last 15 minutes, 10 minutes of the film going in a more obvious way might have been better. Well, better yeah. is maybe not, but certainly it, it might have sat more comfortably with me. Um, and I don't know where. Epi- oh, well, I think that's probably one of the biggest things for me is. At the end of episode seven, it was very clear where episode eight was going to go. Um, and even though, and actually then one of the things about episode eight is it worked really hard to fight against this kind of destiny of, of, of where these things were supposed to be going. Whereas episode nine, 
I have no idea. It, it, it could. It's almost like at the end of um, uh, A New Hope, where really anything could have happened next, kind of thing. And I, I almost feel that way with Episode Nine. I've got. I, I genuinely have no idea what can happen next because so many things that had been building, even stuff that had been building from the classic trilogy now is going to either never come to pass or is going to resolve in a very different way in episode nine. Um, and then stuff that was even being laid, in fact, a lot of the groundwork from episode seven yeah, has taken such a, a left turn, a very sharp left turn, that I, I it's quite exciting. I, I genuinely know nothing about where episode nine is going to go. I know more about, or I have more expectation as to what's going to happen in Han Solo in May than I do, and even, you know, there's been no trailers or anything for that. But I have more expectation about what that's going to contain than I do episode nine. Um, yeah, it is completely. It is. Vague. I mean, I was. I went to. I managed to avoid any sort of um, reviews or trailers, snippets on Facebook. I didn't watch any trailers. No, yeah, the same. Uh, oh wow, really? Yeah, yeah m- much as actually, we managed to get most of that. I mean, I watched the trailers for for the Force Awakens. I didn't. I was um, good on everything, but only one, and then went to see it, and I was. I must say, I really enjoyed The Force Awakens. I thought it was the best possible restart to the... the it was beautiful. ...the old <laughs> series that they could do. And I didn't really have any expectations of this film. And I must say, I was just... And I think the most crushing word you can use for a film is disappointed. <laughs> wow, okay. I, I remember sitting at the cinema and just thinking, I don't... You know, about halfway through thinking, I'm not sure if I like this film. <laughs> uh, and unlike you, Stuart, I, I kind of had that feeling of, I don't, I can't imagine myself thinking, or, you know, if it just appears on TV in the future, thinking, oh yeah, you know, because you just sort of see it after the first 10 minutes and think, well, I know I've got this on Blu-ray, but I'm going to watch it anyway, because it's on telly now. I just thought, I can't imagine myself doing that. To me, it seemed like it was, it, it suffered from the Hobbit syndrome, right? Where the Hobbit was a, a short story. Uh, made into three films, it should have should have happened. It should have been one. It just seemed like it needed editing. <laughs> oh, it, it definitely about fifteen twenty minutes longer than it needed yeah, to be. Yeah. But that opening, I mean, humor aside, that opening, the opening twenty minutes, I thought were fantastic. Um, yeah, you say humor aside. I think that was one of the most jarring bits for me in a Jar Jar Binks kind of way. Was the the humor, of, yeah, the enforced well, some of Disney humor. You yeah. can tell it was Disney. That was my main problem. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see. Maybe on cogitation and, and a rewatch, it might, well, uh, it might actually, change. Well, actually, I don't know. There were some like... awesome scenes in it. No, no yeah. So yeah. my my thing is I watched a, um, a guy that I watch a lot on YouTube. He does film reviews. I watched him do a quick review of it. And he basically said, he's not a massive Star Wars fan, but he basically said, like, he knows a lot of people have been, claim- been complaining but why? Because, like, you're going to see a Star Wars film, and the only reason that people are disappointed at this one is because of the massive pedestal that these films are placed on. So the expectations are so high that if anything is slightly wrong, it drops massively. I feel like that is quite a lot. I don't know, but I didn't really have that No, but if you think about the whole Star Wars franchise, if you think about how massive it is, and how much people put their faith in these films and stuff... Yeah, well, people, people do... Mm-hmm. quite oddly with Star Wars but I do I do agree that there are lots of scenes that physically hurt me <laughs> like I think there was one time in the film where I actually had to look away because I was too embarrassed to watch it <laughs> um, I think we all know what scene that is which one I ju- I'll just say Mary Poppins and I oh, feel like gosh. we'll all know oh you see I, I, I was I was 
I had no problem with that whatsoever. In fact, it made lots of sense to me that that moment because, yeah, I you can't say too much. I, can't I was <laughs> I, exactly. I was fine with that. Green milk was the only thing where I, <laughs> I, I had. I had a slight issue, but... Uh, yeah, we didn't need to see yeah. that. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, when you got that first shot, uh, I noticed uh, the, the green milk dispensers, shall we say, and I thought... Oh, dear. Well, I, it, there was just a little part of my brain, a little aberrant part yeah. of my brain that thought, you don't normally see that in a Disney movie. I wonder if that's going to be actually, you know, a focal point for, oh, yes, it's in the next scene. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, it will all make sense when you see the film if you haven't already. But I do agree with Stuart that I would like to see this one again because there are moments yep. in this film which were epic and they just look so good on the full big screen. It's like if you just took all the bits out that were bad. <laughs> yeah, there seem to be some bits where you could just, like I say, if you edited it and stitched more of that together. Uh, because felt... they didn't necessarily add to continuity some of those bits in between. You no. just think, actually, this is twenty minutes that you don't need. I felt anything with the colour red predominantly was amazing. <laughs> yes, um, yes. I, 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 yeah, anything with the colour red in it, and there's a couple of scenes where there's a lot of red, <laughs> um, were visually stunning. I would say were really yeah, amazing. All the space, the best, all of the, the best scene in the entire movie is, is predominantly red, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I mean, and for me, I, I still think about it, and actually, when, when I'm thinking about watching it again, I'm like, oh, I get to see this that again. This is all I've been going on so about good. that, about my favourite scene, just yeah. saying that. So, so good. It, yeah, it, it yeah. is good. Oh, I'll leave it on one thing as well. Um, like, uh, you'll know when you see it, but just get rid of this one creature that just does there's too many too many of this creature it doesn't need to be in this many scenes and why doesn't more people not find it annoying uh, well the the answer is children children and the merchandise yeah. <laughs> well, yes. are you talking about are you talking about porgs because i am talking I think, about porgs I think, I think you can say pork i think people have, yeah i don't think people can be aware that there aren't porgs actually I, I think all animals in this film should be taken out because it annoys me I, I actually had no problem with the porks. I actually thought the porks are fine. I have less. I have more problem with Ewoks than I do porks. Actually, the um, the crystal cats were kind of got me. Foxes. Oh, I like them. No, the foxes, the foxes were good. They were good yeah, just not in that film. I thought they were good, but I didn't understand. Yeah, what, why? <laughs> it's like they, they seem to serve no purpose whatsoever, other than. Well, a here we go. Small should we? Thing at the because end. we're not doing this, should we do a hit on miss, a hit or miss on this film? We, we should. Go yes, we should do a specific. Uh, let's tear Star Wars apart. And well, I'm going to say it's a hit just again. now. Ah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> moving on then. But, well, okay, it's your hobby time discussion because I'm I'm done. That was me from summer to the present. So, what have you been doing over the over the last five months? Well. A lot less actual computer gaming, I have to say. That is true. I've noticed the colour of your skin is less white. Less pale. And my eyes are actually circled rather than square. Um, Because I've been doing a lot of D&D, as we said. I've been doing a lot more reading. And I just tend to... I really know what I've been doing all of this time. Hopefully, I was hoping you were going to say a lot more schoolwork then as well. Yeah, my graphics work, actually. (laughs) Is hard now. Oh, universities, I suppose. That's what I've been doing, isn't it? Driving lessons. Driving lessons. I'm, uh, it's all do, real life stuff. I'm just again. finding adult stuff now. And, I, and the more I realise, the more I do these adult things, the more I realise that no one on earth has a clue what they're doing, kind of thing. You know? Well, <laughs> oh, he's seen behind the curtains, Stuart. Well, yeah, I mean, you will find as you get older that you still just always look for the more, uh, the, for the more adultier adult. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so it'll be whoever is... 
whoever. So, you know, like, I mean, I'm nearly 40. Um, I would still, if there was a 50 year old around, I would naturally seek more um, guidance. Well, like, uh, my wife's parents, uh, lovely people. Um, but in conversations, I am painfully aware that they're adults. I'm not an adult. There's, I mean, even though I'm, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I'd say I, I've got children of my own and, and to them, I'm, I'm incredibly old. But yeah, I think you look at adults and no matter what age you are, anybody that's older than you, or, um, you're always going to look up to and, and expect them to have all the answers, even though really deep down you probably suspect that they only have slightly more of a clue than you do. <laughs> it's, it's true. But um, universities have been exciting, been going to places. I've got a, um, a conditional offer for yeah. you know, South Wales, which is far away. But um, Excellent. Yeah, thank you. It's all very exciting. It's not that far away. It's further away than Bath. It is. And guess which one mum wants me to go to? <laughs> Bath. Bath. Yeah. But she wants you to live at home, which I think you should not go do. to the one you want to, but even if you go to Bath, you should live away. You want so. me to leave. You just like, get out. Oh, no, I just think you should experience university as it should be. Yeah. And then you'll have slightly more money in your pocket as well. Well, there is that one. I won't because I'll end up paying for some of your stuff anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah other than that, we've not really... We've, it's been kind of lazy. Yeah, it's... We've got not really lazy. It's just been. It's, weird. it's just been busy with. It has, yeah. Boring stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, what about you then, Stuart? As a first time to our podcast, what, uh, what sort of games, films, hobby stuff do you do you get up to? Because you're obviously surrounded by these things at, at work. So, yeah. is it a case of there's you're saturated and just want to be away from it when you get home? Or? Yeah, I mean, much like much like the sex life of a gynecologist. There's um, if you're working in uh, war gaming, there's. Uh, Said it takes something rather special and rather different to whatever it is that you're spending your day to day doing to actually make you go and game. So the games I tend to play are um, quirky games that are usually board games or card games or something like that. Uh, I do some gaming with my son uh, as well, but not as much as I'd like. Uh, yeah, so Potion Explosion, I've been playing that a little bit recently. Um, that sounds fun. Oh, Potion Explosion is great. It's, um, I like games that are, I suppose because I spend a lot of time looking at different game mechanics and, and what have you, um, I like games that have unique or unusual game mechanics or certainly a game mechanic I haven't seen before. Um, Potion Explosion is great because it's essentially it's marbles and you, um, it, it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like, um, like Candy Crush or one of those kind of app games oh, yeah. where you have the things. So what you have, you have um, a whole bunch of marbles in racks, and they're they're going to they're in four different colours, and you and you, you're trying to create potions in kind of like a Hogwartsy type potions class or potions laboratory alchemy lab. And as you and you each potion, uh, which is like a card with little slots in to put your marbles in, has particular colours it needs in order to create it. So you, you, you draw one marble a turn, um, and, but it, when you draw the marble, any marbles that um, are touching that marble that are of the same colour, you also get to take, which is great. When you take it, though, because the gravity then affects the marbles themselves and they clash together, if that then causes marbles of the same colour, even if it's not the colour that you picked but of the same colour to each other to hit each other then, you then get to take those out and so on and so on. So you then effectively get a handful of marbles of all different colours, if you're clever, 
and you start to populate all these potions and the more potions you create and not only can you then you you can drink those potions and then give you additional effects in the game but you also you you win awards for creating certain groups of potions and then whoever has the most uh, awards the most points at the end of the game wins uh, it, it's a relatively simple mechanic but it's it's really good it's really good fun and you can play it with it's, it's cross-generational you can play it with more adult year adults as well as children that sounds fun good. i like it often that is a, a thing actually like the more simple quick fire kind of game mechanics often they, look, they have more replayability and stuff don't they what well, code names we played the other with my mother-in-law um, <laughs> all the way down to my daughter and yeah but it still worked and normally trying to get my mother-in-law to play a game correctly is like trying to mount everest <laughs> we're trying so, to teach a pig to fly more yeah, like <laughs> yeah and, and she got it and um <laughs> well i wouldn't use got it <laughs> <laughs> she managed to play through it uh-huh. <laughs> yeah i mean i think sometimes more complicated games are worthwhile if they've got a great theme or they've got a, um, you know, or there's, or there's like a richness to the experience that's, that's worth committing a couple of hours of your life to, but, yeah. um, or like 18 if it's Twilight Imperium, but then if you get, <laughs> um, but I think, I think really the simpler games, the more elegant game mechanics, and something like Uno, I mean, I've played Uno yeah. for years and years. It's brilliant, you know, and, and you can, and you can get it out. You can explain the rules relatively quickly uh, you can even explain Uno to somebody that doesn't necessarily speak English very well, and very because it's visual, it's colours, um, and very simple numbers, um, and it uses concepts that are quite easy to explain. It's fiendishly good, and I think games like that uh, really will stand the test of time compared to um, uh, as much as I love Mansions of Madness, for example, the second edition of Mansions of Madness. Um, I don't think in twenty years' time we're still going to be talking about it. Whereas I would be stunned if Uno wasn't still in, you know, actively being played and that the game itself was no different in 20 years time to how it is right now, because it's for the kind of game it is, it's pretty much perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Monopoly. That's going to be around. (laughs) Sadly it is. (laughs) Uh, Suro. Have you guys played Suro at all? No, no. Oh, that's a, terrific game uh, that game it's again really super simple where you're basically laying you're laying tiles and you've got a little stone little colored stone and when you lay a tile um, you must then immediately uh, move your stone from a point on the edge of the board um, and you must follow the path that's on the tile that you put down and there's multiple paths they're all black lines multiple paths and if a player when a player lays a tile that's um that connects a, a line um, on another tile, that any any pieces that are on that line must then be moved to the end of to the end of the line, as it were, so that you, you you're connecting it. it. It's a it's a it's quite a simple mechanic, uh, but you start to play it, and it's it's brilliant. It sounds I mean, like it, it might be quite an evil game. <laughs> it absolutely is because then it's about you, because if if the stone goes off the board, you're out. Uh, so oh. then it's about then it's about placing tiles in such a way because you have to place a tile in contact with your own tile though you can't place it just randomly onto somebody else's so you place in such a way that um, you cause somebody to go to follow their path and it either brings them it either causes them to collide with another stone which obviously puts them both out or it causes them to go off the board um, and eventually whatever the last stone is uh, on the board wins and it's it, it, it's a it's a simple game but again it's very elegant, uh, visually 
visually great and it and i like things that use mixed um mixed media not a single die to be seen as well which i think says a lot yeah definitely mm. but have you played galaxy truckers i have another game very good yeah yeah we played that last night didn't we mm. it was, uh... i want to get the expansion that has aliens in it like xenomorph aliens <laughs> Or introducing introducing aliens into a game is is, is never is never necessarily going to go across very well with everybody. <laughs> you need to you need to be careful about that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Stuart. We're going to skip our, our usual hit and miss section this episode because we want to exploit Stuart shamelessly whilst he's here, as we do everyone on this show. <laughs> no, no, it's it's all fine, Stuart. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. But as, as such, we want to pose as many questions as possible that fans might have over uh, the, the recent developments at. Uh, well, I say recent; it's been a few months now at War Cradle. Having said that, perhaps we can take a, a bit of a step back, Stuart, and talk about War Cradle itself, because uh, I'm sure you know War Cradle isn't necessarily uh, a household name as it were, in gaming in the way that perhaps Games Workshop uh, and some of these other behomers uh, are. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about, uh, especially for those of us who aren't in the old country over the pond, uh, who may be less familiar with, with War Cradle. Yeah, okay. So War Cradle um, began uh, in earnest uh, last year. And we have uh, We began by looking at Various properties. We knew we're part of Wayland Games, so we've sort of come from a background of retail and you know and, and looking at a, a whole range of games, and we have done for you know, best part of a decade. Uh, but we knew that we wanted to sort of take some of that, some of the best practice that we'd seen in the industry, and some of the ideas and the things that we were passionate about, because you know, nobody gets into gaming unless they are. Yeah, that, that they have an interest in it. I mean, I think there are lots of other places that you can make a, a hell of a hell of a lot of more, uh, more money a lot faster than uh, than tabletop walking. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we looked at it and we waited for the right property. Uh, we had a few properties of our own that we were developing. We're still developing some uh, some of our own um, some of our own IPs. But um, there was an opportunity. Uh, we got on very well with the guys at um, Outlaw Miniatures. And there was an opportunity to sort of take over the stewardship and run with Wild West Exodus. And so we took that on and reworked that from the ground up because it was the miniatures are fantastic. The um, I can say that because we didn't make those miniatures. So, yeah, I'll, I'll credit where credit's due. The miniatures are fantastic. And the um, the idea of it, the, the core of the, you know, the the idea of what the game is about um, was quite compelling so we took that and then we i believe and, and and the others in the studio believe that really the the game system has to represent the type of game that you're trying to um you know so, so the, the narrative should be you know hand in hand with the with the game engine with the system it shouldn't be that that's why i think star wars monopoly is is terrible because yeah. The what? Because <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's still it, Monopoly. <laughs> yeah. so, well, but Star Wars Risk is more uh, more interesting than Star Wars Monopoly because at least it's a you know, the, there's a there's the war part of Star Wars in it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, well, no, there is war in Monopoly. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah. Table yeah. flipping doesn't count. <laughs> and and yes, and it's the idea that an economic or a trade war is as interesting as a Star War. That that's how we end up the Phantom Menace. <laughs> <isn't it? Not laughs> 
<laughs> Let's not go down. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So uh, we we we, so we looked at that. We we reworked Wildbus Exodus uh, entirely. Um, the game engine is is completely new. There was nothing wrong with the old game engine, but it it was not. Well, we didn't believe that it it was quite the right fit for the the type of game that Wildbus Exodus um, was le- lending itself to. And um, yes, we launched the second edition of Exodus earlier on this year, and we have a whole host of new miniatures, uh, as well as uh, kind of updates and things to some of the old the old favourites. And it's been yeah, it's been going really well. Uh, as part of that, though, and as you know, uh, as part of that process, we knew that Wabas Exodus was part of a much larger, um, much larger world that we were we were working on to create. Uh, when we then uh, got into uh, looking at Spartans, uh, Dystopian Wars, and, and the rest of the IPs there, again we we looked at those, and th- there would have been no point just picking it up to to continue things the way they were, because essentially the game was you know it, it was doing okay, but um, you know we had the sales information, we could see that there was the potential with a little bit of a little bit of reworking. That it could become so much more, and it could uh, it, it could reach reach a much wider audience, and I think it deserves because the dystopian wars and um, the related games and the miniatures are well, yeah they, they, they're, they're great yeah there's a they, they deserve it deserves to be a larger more popular game um, than it than it is, and there are so many games out there. So yeah. we worked with um, we worked with you know a, a number of people, including some of the uh, original guys at Spartan. And uh, we uh, we took on dystopian uh, dystopian wars and the and the world, and that's kind of brought us to where we are now, where we're we're now reworking uh, some elements of uh, of the setting, but also um, there's whole chunks of the of the setting that we're uh, you know we're using, we're incorporating, and we're yeah, it's exciting times at Warcraft at the moment. So. Perhaps that's a good uh, segue then into talking about well what you've called the this what you've called the dystopian age, where you yes. you have merged elements of this and uh, somewhat ironically it seems to have caused a bit of a, a dystopian discussion amongst fans. So it seems to have been not necessarily divisive, but you know fans love to to bicker about all sorts of stuff. Um, so perhaps you could explain some of the rationale behind. You know how you've merged those those different settings into the dystopian age. Yeah. Okay. So there's you see it's interesting because the uh, so Wild West Exodus. So yes, in the dystopian age, both Wild West Exodus, Dystopian Wars, and Armored Clash, and there are other games as well, but we we haven't sort of announced them yet. Um, are all part of the dystopian age. So it's a it's a it's a, a single setting. That all of these these different war games and, and other materials that takes part in, in in kind of putting it together, so there, there were some obvious connections and obvious parallels. And I think one of the thing one, one of the things is, and perhaps for some of the people um, who struggle with with understanding the why of them coming together, is because so while this Exodus was created uh, when we did the second edition. It's created as the um, as a particular focal point of a of a larger world. So it was always, it was always a a point of a larger world. So there's not, uh, it wasn't 
the world of Wild West Exodus didn't end at the edges of the American frontier, but obviously for the purposes of the game, that is the focus of the game. So uh, when we looked at then um, dystopian wars and, and, the, and the dystopian world, actually that greater world that we had in mind for Wild West Exodus, that Wild West Exodus sat in, was very, very similar to the world that dystopian wars sits in. So... Uh, and the kind of games that they are as well. So there's there's some tonal concerns between the two games. But what you have to bear in mind is that from in terms of the the game itself, they're very different types of games. Anyway, one is a sort of 35 millimeter skirmish game set in the Wild West um, of America. The other one is a you know a one to one thousand two hundred scale naval game. Uh, but, <laughs> but so. There were, there, 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 I think there was concerns, and there still are concerns, that somehow Wild West Exodus would would be the the dominating um, the dominating influence on the game or on the on the universe, as it were, and and, yeah. and actually uh, looking at it now, and, and I found it uh, I found it a strange notion. I mean, even the other day I was having a conversation with somebody, and they were saying, well, obviously the Conquistadors, because in uh, Wild West Exodus there are um, there are eight conquistadors who have been um, effectively frozen in time for 300 years. And so they're now running around in the Old West. Um, and it's like, well, obviously, the conquistadors are, you know, are massively important to the uh, Latin alliance, which is the, the the power block of Spain and Portugal and so on. And, um, and I thought, well, why on earth would why on earth would this you know, major global power? They're not even aware, probably, that there are these eight guys running, <laughs> running around in in you know in the deserts of Arizona. I mean, it's, <laughs> Wild West Exodus is very much uh, yes, it's part of the dystopian age, but it's a it's a very specific setting in a particular corner of that world, and it's it, you know it's fairly self-contained. It's there are elements of the larger world, such as the Union, um, the Union of Federated States, that you know that that it sits in that obviously are part of that larger world. Uh, but really everything else about Wild West Exodus is kind of within Wild West Exodus. You're not going to get, so the warrior nation are a, are a significant factor in the, uh, in the, in the setting of Wild West Exodus. But when you're talking about global yeah. empires, or you, even not, not even that, if you're talking about the dystopian wars, naval game, well, the warrior nation aren't going to feature in that in any kind of. Well, you, you could have a, a, a shapeshifter in a canoe coming up to a battleship. It's, just, <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen. It, you know, in, I can see that would pose some casting yeah. issues. It, so I don't. Um, so there are there are Tony. You know, they go. Oh, I don't like. You know, some people don't like the supernatural element, and it's it it isn't necessary. I mean, some of the factions in Wild West Exodus do think of it as magic or supernatural because that's how they interpret. That's how they interpret the world around them, um, you know, and, and that's that's fine. Um, and we're not necessarily saying that they're wrong, although whenever we do anything from the point of view of the, the, the various scientists and other learned peoples of the uh, of the dystopian age, they would say that they're wrong. They're, I don't know, you know, crazy. Uh, but I, I like the notion that the 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 you know the, these major empires maybe not as not as all knowing and clever as perhaps that they they assume to be because arrogance is a great is a great theme for a, for a global empire and that 
the the various yeah the tribes of the warrior nation aren't necessarily as primitive and backwards as these um as these great empires assume them to be and that i mean the great thing in the in the background for the warrior nation is is that they their understanding of the world is is pretty spot on they might they might phrase it their terminology or their um their their framing reference might be kind of influenced by their own culture but they understand um and there are various um you know alien forces and other things in the world that um some of the some 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 of these uh, global powers are ignorant of the warrior nation are fully aware of what they are and they understand they don't necessarily understand the concept of like gravity drive and photonic cannons and whatever else they're wielding about but they understand when something is evil and when something come or what they would consider evil or from beyond the, beyond the sky or, or, or whatever they understand the 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 true nature of things even if they don't necessarily have the 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 right terminology that perhaps some of the other powers are so i find i find the dystopian age and having these different types of sort of viewpoints on it it makes it a really a really rich and really interesting world and it's a it's a world that's uh you know constantly in in a state of in a state of conflict there's you've got these eight or more major empires major powers that are you know, most of the nations of the world have kind of um, brought themselves into various alliances into these eight great um, power blocks effectively across the planet. And they're sort of rubbing against each other like tectonic plates. Each one of them, you know, so there's constantly there's battles, there's um, you know, clashes out in, in the sea, there's land grabs in, um, in you know, uh, in Africa, in South America, you know, battles in Belgium, battles on the... Um, you know, off the coast of uh, off the coast of France, and it's, you know, all, all over the world there are these these hotspots, these flashpoints, and things. I mean, we've even got um, you know people, you know, submarines sneaking up the Thames and making raids on ships at dock and things. The whole the whole planet is at, is in this state of conflict where, though, um, because they've got these massive power blocks and because the technologies that these um, that these these nations also not these nations these these factions have. Should the same as World War One and World War Two, when we effectively you get to the point of formal declarations of war, and then suddenly the whole place engulfs in this, um, you know, deadly spiral of destruction, it would be that, but magnified a hundred times because effectively you've got you've got the Victorian attitudes and the Victorian sensibilities in the world, but they've got nuclear weapons. Yeah, they have they have atomic <laughs> weapons already. So when yeah, eventually Queen Victoria is going to give consent and they're going to declare war, um, the crown is going to obliterate somebody. And it's and it's at that moment that then this and where the setting is, it's this kind of like minute to midnight type thing where it's the world is riven by all sorts of conflicts and clashes and saber rattling and. Um, secret missions and adventure and you know the various nations and factions looking for the advantage that's going to give them the you know the the, the decisive quality in this in this coming war because there is a global war coming but there you know you, you can imagine there's lots of very gray-haired diplomats and ambassadors desperately trying to uh, explain why yet another expeditionary fleet that's been butchered by uh, <laughs> by 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 <laughs> counterinsurgency force and You've got the Teutonic Knights being dispatched by the uh, Prussian Imperium on uh, 
on various missions to send a message or whatever back to the uh, back to the Russian Commonwealth. And, uh, so there's, you've got all of this going on, this this rich, um, fractious world, and everybody's on the one hand desperate to make sure that then that their faction comes out on top, but at the other hand, there is there is the whispers and the rumours that 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 there is a a truly devastating war coming and any one of the uh any one of the you know the battles any one of the skirmishes any one of the uh the sieges or the blockades or the the insurrections being put down or whatever else it is that's going on in the world any one of those could be the final straw that causes one of these great blocks to declare war on the other and the whole like pushing the first domino then the whole lot is going to come crashing down and uh yeah, we'll uh, we'll then pick up the game, you know, ten years later when everybody's living in caves and they're um, yeah, and they're <laughs> flinging, flinging poo at each other because because they've been annihilated back to the Stone Age. But yeah, it, good times. That's the old Einstein quote, isn't it, about World War Three? Doesn't know what weapons World War Three. Well, I was going to say that's pretty much with. just like kind of like we're at the stage now where we're literally at the end of that sequence. <laughs> yes. Well, it should happened like a hundred years sooner um, <laughs> <laughs> without any of the yeah, other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I can see it makes, I mean, I think it actually gives you a lot more scope uh, for both games, you know, and it exposes without changing two slightly much on different <laughs> groups of players as well, exposure to, to the other system. One of the things you, you have changed, though, in Armoured Clash is the, the scale. Yes. So you're now going to be looking at 10mm. So, and there's been some concern expressed by some people about uh, what happens to existing models. And I know you've, you've stated a policy before of you know, not invalidating what people already have. So perhaps you can just expand a little bit about, about Armoured Clash and the, the scale change. Sure. Okay, so um, one of the things... One of the things in Dystopian Wars is so the second edition of Dystopian Wars had land um, as well as uh, naval units in the game. And the idea was that it was um, it was like one scale to be able to sort of fight on multiple theatres, which in principle is fantastic. You know, it's a great idea. And what it lets you do is if you had loads of bespoke scenery or custom tables and what have you. Yeah. It's one of those concepts where if you put in masses of effort, you will be rewarded a hundredfold because you, you know, what a great idea. Um, and then no, our change is not because um, we think it was a terrible idea. Our change comes because actually we looked at how popular the land game was. And because essentially you did have some people that just played the land game uh, and that's, fine you know you know brilliant you had uh but lots of people played the naval game very few people though there were some absolutely but very few people played the naval and land game together and that i think was so it was one of those things where everybody seemed to enjoy the idea that you could do you could do this great three theater game but the reality was that it, it happened so infrequently. And we saw the sales figures of the land game. And the idea in that in that dystopian world, in the dystopian age as it is now, the idea of land conflict, you know, in, in the, in, I mean, I love the old campaigns. Um, I used to work for Games Workshop many years ago. And, uh, yeah, the old, the idea of the, the, like the Treasure Island campaign or whatever, we'd have like, you'd have a large um, island in the middle of nowhere and you'd grid it up 
and you'd and you'd have your like your little stickers for each of the each of the player factions and you'd and every time you won a battle against somebody you'd get to put a sticker to kind of grow your territory and all that kind of stuff in a land game in particular fantastic so we knew we definitely wanted to have more land battles happening and it was a crying shame that because of the um yeah because of the fact that they were kind of all married into one system it, it was the almost like the red-headed stepchild of the of the uh, of the trinity which, which was a shame uh, but the they obviously then going if we just follow that logic through though then surely what we would do is we would just have a game a land game at one to one thousand two hundred scale and a, a naval game at one to one thousand two hundred scale because that would make the most sense but one of the other issues with being at that scale is so that one to one thousand two hundred is a great scale for naval combat. It means that your yeah. your frigates are about an inch, inch and a half, two inches long. Yeah, your cruisers are between three and four inches long, and your battleships are about five, four and a half, five, six inches. Yeah, that kind of so good size playing pieces. And really, the smallest good meaty models. Yeah, that scale. Don't yeah. you? With the smallest you want to get with the playing piece is about an inch. You don't want to get. For, for a miniature, I'm not talking about tokens and things, but actually for gaming miniatures, smaller than an inch, and it starts starts to get a bit fiddly. Um, Which is why the Warhammer tiny version just did not oh, work. Epic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but even Epic, you, you weren't moving individual Space Marines around. You'd have five to a base or whatever, and it was about well, just under an inch uh, square. So it wasn't yeah. it, it wasn't disastrous. Um, so. We wanted to make sure that that was still the case. The problem, though, if you have a, an inch-sized tank, yeah, uh, because of the scale, one to one thousand two hundred, that makes it like the size of a warehouse. Because essentially, your you, your main tanks, the tanks that you most commonly have in uh, you know on the battlefield, are the size of a frigate, which yeah. <laughs> which is which is yeah. Look, it, it, the dystopian age is one of fantastic war machines and the like. But the thing is, if everything's colossally huge, then and really, actually, anything that would be the size of what you and I would consider to be a normal tank, you know, a, a kind of a, 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 a more relatable size tank, so something maybe the size of a, a tank, um, were, <laughs> um, is is represented by a token because it's so it's so tiny at that scale. And infantry. Infantry are what just under two millimeters high, because yeah, it's about two millimeters the scale that that kind of game. Which so you couldn't ever you just got various blobs, various dots or whatever would represent the infantry. Or actually, what they ended up doing is they have a they have a token that represents infantry, and and it, it just becomes so that end of the game becomes so abstracted. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so it. Um, yeah, I'm never a fan of tokens representing infantry and things on table it uh, it's a big suspension of disbelief breaker for me yeah but particularly if you want your infantry if you want infantry to have a role in the game if you don't want infantry to really yeah. have a role and they're just a they're just a resource like a like a almost like a form of ordnance or something then fine but if you want to say well actually these elite infantry we're going to do this with these guys though these guys are the flamer you know this is a flamer unit the uh, or these guys are um you know they're Teutonic Knights, they've got the, the extra armor. Unless you're then going to say, oh, and they're in, so the Teutonic Knights, um, on foot are actually in some kind of large power armored suit, which you could still do at 10 millimeters, but it would be uh, you know, a more significant size model. Uh, it, effectively, the, they're no different 
they, they're just another token and what you either paint the token differently or you have a different colored dice or something on it. it yeah so I say it became quite abstracted so we looked at different scales and we yeah we made the decision okay look let's if we're going to do a separate game for the tanks for the land game to make it the kind of the hero of its own game rather than being the the other thing that people play in um, in the naval game let it let, let's pick a scale that really gives us the greatest scope to do things with so we we looked at a few scales um so we looked at something like epic kind of, you know kind of around six millimeter five six millimeter uh we looked at eight millimeter which is um kind of a weird halfway house where i, I believe um some forthcoming game might be might, might be making use of that scale uh, but uh, we, uh, we we opted with 10 millimeter because it was still small enough that you could have some really fantastically colossal looking machines without somebody having to you know bring a briefcase to hold a single model in um, but at the same point you could also have infantry in the game and be able to okay you can't pick out bass reeves's mustache although we did have <laughs> multi- we did have multiple tiny bass reeves as our um, as our scale as our scale so just so that we could just so we could, or bass reeves was just over six foot tall he was actually surprisingly tall for the for the time period so he was quite a good um, benchmark for um, modern a modern man sized object um, yeah, at that scale. So we so we used uh, we used little bass reeves. I've still got them in my office. I've got like a little little cluster of, <laughs> and they range from <laughs> the, the, the four millimeter bass reeves is is really tiny. Uh, but then they go up to I think we even did a, did we do twelve millimeter bass reeves? I think we even went to just to see the different the different sizes and things and see what they look like. Um, so yeah, we opted for ten millimeter. Uh, several reasons um but we felt i mean the most important one we actually felt that the miniatures looked the best at that scale you know in terms of infantry aircraft tanks land ships and everything robots and everything else it, it, it was a good scale but also it's in it's engage for model railways so it's good for um for people to get collections of terrain very easily I and mean, we're going to do a whole bunch of terrain for armor clash but we want to make sure that people can go down to their local railway shop or or online and, and pick up various bits and pieces and get creative with with some of the um stock stuff that you know um you know why not you know hobbyists are creative and again that goes back to we're not going to tell people oh no you can only use this terrain or that terrain on the table you you, you know yeah. use whatever you like it's uh we'll bring out some some things that we think would look particularly nice on the table but you know you you can fill it with whatever your version or your vision of the uh, dystopian age, you know, the world of that looks like. So, yeah, so we, we went, we went with that scale. And um, when we then looked at the tanks, it was quite nice. We, we worked out, okay, so actually if we say that this, so if we take like the Minsk tank destroyer, which is a uh, thing for the Russian Commonwealth, uh, it's, it's essentially a large slab like tank with a with a kind of a, a long anti-tank gun um, above it, you know, kind of um, running along the top, and uh, a large dozer blade on the front. And then, so in armor, in the original dystopian scale, so the miniature itself is about mm, just over an inch, about an inch and a half long. In dystopian wars, that meant that that and that tank hunter was, yeah, about the size of a uh, post office depot or something like that it's um yeah, it's a, it's, a it, it, it's a fairly it's a fairly hefty tank yeah? yeah would have had a crew of like 50 and 
um, would have used the resources of a small town to um, to put together and, and so on. Um, but then, which is terrific. Uh, yeah, we absolutely should have vehicles that size. We should have these colossal, fabulous vehicles. But not every vehicle should be that size because then that becomes yeah. commonplace and dreary and not exceptional and not exciting because they're all that they're all that big, you know. Um, in fact, if all the vehicles are like that, then all the roads have to be built twice as large in order to, to accommodate them. And then actually, that's just the size of all vehicles, and it, it just becomes a bit commonplace. So, no, we but we, we looked at it. We went, well, how big would the Minsk be if it were about the size of a an actual tank destroyer? You know, a kind of a early 20th century so you know a, um, like a, a stug or something like that uh, and we we looked at it and we went uh, probably be about an inch and a half in 10 millimeter scale okay <laughs> so so we so what, what we did we took we worked out the size that we thought it would be a tank destroyer would be in in armored clash and and the miniature is about the same size so what what's essentially happened is and this isn't the case with every single model but with, with a lot of the, the tanks, as it were, the kind of the more common pieces that you would have as the backbone of your army, that the, the real world equivalent has become more relatable because it's become more like the size of an actual, you know, a, 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 a tank of, you know, the uh, mid, you know, 19, you know, 1940s, 1930s, 1950s, around that time period, um, of, you know, various sizes, but we, you know, we picked a rough size um, for tanks of that period. Um, so it's about that size, and that means that so our tank destroyers are that size. The tanks that they would destroy are about that size, and the miniature. So the new miniature for the Minsk, we made sure because we like the design of a lot of the dystopian stuff. So the new Minsk miniature is very similar to the old Minsk miniature. The differences are though that the the little vision slits that were on it are actually now vision slits for a man rather than. I would imagine they were like a large window or something like that for a, one of the multiple levels inside the inside the tank. Um, the, the there's now a large door on the back of the vehicle, so you can actually see where the crew could get in, um, and it's enabled us to sort of add some. There's like a ladder that's now on the side. You can see how the how the crew would do maintenance because it's 10 millimeters. So there's there's other little details that we can add to the miniature uh, to really kind of um, show things off, and it means that. If we want to add a little bit more detail, a little bit more ornamentation or um, sort of symbols for the um, for the Russian Commonwealth, so there's a Russian eagle on the front of the uh, dozer blade and the mantlet at the front, uh, we can have that without knowing that we've just created a an eagle that's like the size of well, no, size of a block of flats or whatever on the side of or on the side <laughs> of something. We've had, you know, it uses more metal than to make an e- to make an eagle than you, know, you could build an aeroplane with it, so it, it enables us to kind of put some put some detail and and in the background you, you can kind of extend a bit of propaganda, a bit of um, a bit of pomp, a bit of dignity that they they might have um, gone to the extra expense of having these kind of slightly more uh, ornamented vehicles um, without it being just ridiculous. You, know, you, you just would never you would never conceive to do something like that if it was. As I say, like the size of a warehouse, you just wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't build that. So yeah, yeah. so that's that's that, that's really it. So w- what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, we've got some images of some some of the tanks, some of the new tanks that we've got coming out, uh, which we're going to be putting up uh, over the next few months, uh, just to show people. 
And I totally get where some of the concern has come from um, because it, it, it's all a big unknown. It's it's easier for us in the studio to sort of talk about things that our worst is. It's, it's going to be fine. It'll be fine because we've seen the big picture and we've seen how it all locks together and we've seen the sculpts and we know what our principles are with how we want to move things forward. And, you know, we're not changing things for the sake of it and so on. It's easy for us to say that for hobbyists and for people that have been investing in these games for years and now suddenly, uh, you know, first of all, they get the horrible shock when the company that they thought was, you know, massive and eternal has suddenly disappeared and that and the game is potentially dead and then the game has been you know saved as it were hooray and then the company that saved it in a relatively short space of time is changing everything um you know how why why wouldn't they feel shocked and frightened and angry and confused and uh, and all the all the emotions in between um, but you know it is going to be all right the game is going to be fun and exciting and it will have the all the all the things that i i hope that they enjoyed about the original dystopian wars but with some new new twists some new details some additional things um I, i'm sure for a couple of people that's a couple of people, that's probably underselling i'm sure for a a number of people it will it won't be you know whatever the changes we bring in are um it's not for them and that's yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's that's okay. That's you know, I'm, it's not for us to dictate people's hobby. You know, um, as I say, there's one of the guys in the office still plays second edition 40k, and he he thinks it's superior to any version of 40k that's ever come out since. Uh, and he's, he's got <laughs> he's got his own group that plays, and they and they occasionally adapt some of the new units and try and uh, try and adapt them for second edition 40k and so on. And it's brilliant, you know. It's, it's, again, you're looking at fabulously creative people continuing to be creative and, and, and having a hobby that they love. Well, brilliant. Yeah. Great. Uh, I think that's, that's terrific. We can't build, we can't build or focus our business around that. We can't, yeah. we can't maintain multiple versions of the game, but we're not going to get in people's way if they want to, uh, if they want to not jump on the crazy train of dystopian age and want to <laughs> stick with second edition or first edition, that's, that's up to them. And that's, uh, we'll, but we'll be there. We'll we'll be doing our thing, and and hopefully, um, you know, there'll be the, uh, a thriving community that if they do want to then give third edition or fourth edition or fifth edition a go over the coming years, um, you know, there'll be a lot of other people there for them to play with. Okay, thanks. So you mentioned there the thriving community. So within the last few days, well. Let's say the last week, because uh, then that gives me a bit of time to edit this. Within last week, you've opened the uh, the War Cradle forums, which incorporate some of the old uh, Spartan community content uh, for people to get on and, and have those sorts of discussions. Where do you see that sort of developing in the future? How do you mean? What, people people developing stuff? In terms of, obviously, there's a lot of discussion at the moment, a lot of speculation. Uh, how do people give their feedback on, on their games, on trying to, you know, I've got a great idea for you know, whatever Spartan franchise that you picked up that you haven't yet done announcements on. How do I get my ideas to, to War Cradle? And are they going to listen to me, or is it a team of developers? You just do your own thing. How is the community going to be viewed by War Cradle, I guess, is the, the underlying question. I would hope um, that we have indicated people um, 
haven't necessarily liked what we had to say, but I would hope that we have proven that we are at least engaging with the community. We are talking to the community. We are listening. Um, there, you know, we have sometimes, and the great thing about the listening is that sometimes there are misconceptions or concerns in the community about various aspects of something that is um is because the way that we've expressed it um and you know i'll be honest i'm i, I do quite a bit of the you know the video chatting and what have you and I, i'm on facebook and the forums and it, um, and it may well be me it, it, it's that i've expressed something in a way that's given somebody the wrong impression um so it's a great opportunity the you know the various media platforms and um and the forums a great opportunity for me to you know correct the record for me to be, maybe add more clarity or if somebody's taken an aspect of what's been said and then that, that they've kind of explored it in a way that certainly i didn't intend to be able to have that conversation and get, bring their understanding to certainly what i meant i mean it, it still may not be what they wanted to hear but it but at least <laughs> at, at least what they what they understand is absolutely what i uh, intended a good example would be um when we talked in the initial we did some the initial announcement and we talked about armored clash we talked about uh, dystopian wars um so i mentioned dystopian wars that there were uh so in the dystopian world you've got these massive powers these massive factions which are a combination of nations there's other than the union nobody's foolish enough to try and stand on their own everybody's got either uh, dominions or um, or allies that they're that they're um, with in this in this great war or, or great build up to war um, but that uh, the the factions aren't directly and openly you know with declarations of war going hammer and tongs at each other instead they're they're using a myriad of, of different ways to kind of leverage um supremacy and and many of them are military and that's what we explore through dystopian wars and armored clash and uh, to a lesser degree wildest exodus and some of the other games but uh but also they use uh, espionage and economic uh, supremacy and so on. And actually, some of the economic supremacy it means uh, means that it's um, it's leveraged through military because it's then the attack on supplies and the, the securing of resources and, and whatever else. But in my in my explaining uh, of that as part of the initial announcement, I, I, I mentioned the dystopian wars. There was lots of conflict in the open seas because. Um, that was the one place on the earth where the nations can fully flex this dreadful super science that they all have to its fullest extent because essentially they're hammering another military target far away from any of their own assets or their own uh, terrain or or even the resources that they might want to seize so conflict in the open seas was the most devastating of all because of the power and things that these these great leviathan like warships can wield um and i also talked about um armored clash and there being a strong narrative in africa in in fact africa is a key a key battleground in the dystopian age because obviously you have the various african nations there but you also have the various imperial powers the various factions are also um, trying to push their own agendas in, in, in on that continent, and again, it's sufficiently far away from most of the other factions' territories that that they can use massed armor and land ships and you know sky fortresses and other bits and pieces to really, you know, really start to brutalize the enemy. 
that so you've got these you've got these terrific um, these terrific flashpoints, these terrific points that I uh, or areas that I mentioned in the uh, in in the conversation. What I had intended was that I was giving them as key examples as to what was happening and and, and really um, to show how you know, as an example of how these great powers were. Um, were fighting not not a proxy war, but were certainly were fighting um, away from their main holdings. And uh, but it was always the intention that there were other fights going on in the world. That there were other there were lots of battles, running clashes and um, skirmishes, and uh, yeah, massive land conflict in South America. Um, the Arctic, uh, sorry, the Antarctic um, is another uh, another key battleground, and, and so on. So there's these. There's there's war zones throughout the world, but because I've mentioned these two, I've mentioned the open seas and Africa. There was the perception, and they weren't they weren't wrong to have this perception. I um, I was wrong to not be as clear as I should have been. That that was the only place. So armored clash was only going to be armored clash was only ever going to take place in Africa, and dystopian wars was only going to be played in the open seas. So no terrain, no. Um, yeah, no, no, nothing. It was just going to be two two fleets lined up against each other, going hammer and tongs, and that's it. That's the only game you're going to get to play. Uh, now, when I say it like that, obviously it's ridiculous, but I totally understand why people absolutely thought that's what I was saying. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, so this this engagement, this social you know, social media and forums in particular now, is an opportunity for us to tell more, to show more, to explain more. Um, and it's interesting as well because so the uh, Wabas Exodus community are very very keen, very very clear on um, videos and um, you know and the, that that kind of more uh, and podcasts and that kind of thing in in terms of the uh, getting their information and discussing things. Uh, the dystopian community seems slightly different. They seem to, though obviously, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's a varied group as any other one is, but there seems to be a, a number of vocal people who are very keen on just having things written down, having things in writing. So the forum is a good opportunity to do that. It also lets us um, begin to kind of um, bring out some some more flesh for the uh, for the background material. So we've got some information on the Black Wolf and the Honorable Eclipse Company and the Socialist Unity of South America and some of these some of these um, lesser lesser known parts of the dystopian age we can we can give information on those as a way to sort of show people that there are things familiar that they that they might have seen in dystopian before but that they have a slightly different twist or there is a there is a, a narrative thread. Uh, running through them, um, particularly where we make more use of names and characters and more human um, emotions and responses than the kind of the empire building that maybe was the really the only the, the, the only focus of dystopian wars. So it's more relatable. I, I, I think so, but again, I understand for some people they weren't interested in the human story. It was about it was it was just the imperial. Um, you know the empire building and the um, the imperial conquest was all that the game was about and and for dystopian wars as a game and for armored clash as a game absolutely if those particular expressions of so if naval conflict or if land conflict is the only thing that you're interested in then of course the, the narrative 
and the setting is going to skew it in those fa- in those ways. You're not going to care about in the dystopian wars game. We're not going to be making reference to you know the plight of um, you know the Mexican farmers or something because it's got it's got <laughs> it, has, it has nothing to do with it. But there is the plight of the Mexican farmers, and Pancho Villa is leading a is leading a revolution, and uh, and he's got his great plans because he's part of his golden army, and he's read this prophecy where he thinks that he's going to uh, control America. So, he, you know, it is part of the dystopian age. It is, it is an aspect. It's an important thread within that part of the world. But in terms of, you know, naval clashing and um, air, air assaults and all the other things that dystopian wars, the game, the actual war game is about, it's not relevant at all. So, and I think that's one of the bits that, whereas the narrative for dystopian wars in second edition was only from the point of view and only really the focus of the, of the game. Um, Cause why would it need to be anything more? The dystopian age though is, is, is a broader canvas because actually it needs to take into account a narrative that role play games can very comfortably slide into that. You know, you could do card games, dice games, other war yeah. games um, and, and a myriad of other things. So actually espionage is important the politics is important it's not going to be important in the game of dystopian wars you're not going to have a political phase but but in terms of the, <laughs> in terms of the overall setting though for the whole you know this, this rich tapestry that we're trying to stitch together um that will support lots of games and lots of things in that world then of course it's of course it's important yeah i mean to me the the world building aspect of, of any game is a big part of the you're getting beyond the suspension of disbelief, getting into the, the sort of it, feeling of it. Makes it more cinematic when you know well, the we've background. We've always played um, themed and cinematic games, haven't we? We used to do battle write-ups, which were more like stories. You know? Whenever we used to, when back in the days of 40k, before every single fight we used to do, pretty much. I mean, we'd have the odd random one, but before every one we did, we generally write about the background, why we were yep. fighting, where we were. And it just made it so much better because there was an intent, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I think one of the successes of, of Games Workshop and the 40k universe is that it has a very rich, deep... Uh, well, it's taken on its own life, hasn't it? I mean, now you have the Black Library where you have actually commonly reviewed books now yeah. <laughs> about this universe. Um, so yeah, I think it is important. It's definitely important. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from my side, I think in terms of your... Your general outlook, the modus operandi, if you like, of, of War Cradle so far, um, you know, it's been in stark contrast, I would say, to to some of perhaps Spartan's choices. Uh, well, just just general working with the community, there was a lot of um, intent there, but I think that probably wasn't followed through. Whereas, uh, and I can understand why that's generated a bit of nervousness because guess we had a lot of announcements of oh you'll hear this and then six months later you still hadn't heard it yeah um whereas i think you know you've been demonstrating that well guys you're going to hear this and then there's a you know a video on youtube about it or a uh, a post on facebook or something in the community so i mean for my side it, it it's a very positive um engagement of the the, the dystopian Dystopian Wars, Armored Clash, let's call it a dystopian age um, community so far, and the wider community beyond that. And um, so a couple of things I just want to go back to, because obviously when you picked up uh, the, the franchises, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, 
So when he picks up the franchises from, from Spartan, there were a couple of ones which um, hadn't had really an attention previously, and those that had had a lot of attention, perhaps detrimentally to the overall performance of Spartan, uh, and those were Uncharted Seas, which obviously you, you have spoken about since the acquisition, and Halo, which kind of isn't. So can, can you comment on those both of those two uh, different IPs? Yeah, which do you want me to talk about first? Oh, let's talk about Halo, because I suspect that will take less time. <laughs> yeah, we don't own Halo. We didn't. Uh, yeah. it, wasn't part of, um, it wasn't part of what was on offer from, um, from Spartan, it, it, because it's not Spartan's IP. Yeah, it belongs to Microsoft. So when Spartan um, went to the wall, uh, the IP immediately reverted to Microsoft, as it should do. Um, we could have got into negotiation with Microsoft but we you know it's nothing against Halo but we just it wasn't something that we we were looking to do uh, I mean never say never but certainly it isn't something we're we're looking to do we you know we think there's there's plenty with uh, the dystopian age to explore and 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 get involved in there's some other space game that we've uh, we've ended up acquiring that no doubt you're going to be pumping me for information about um, later on in the conversation <laughs> um, and um, yeah we have and we have yeah we've got lots we've got lots of our own ideas as well so um war cradle is not just going to be about having um other people's ips all the time there are we yeah we are a game studio we we have and we intend to have other games coming out that aren't from the dystopian age or um, or, or uncharted seas, or firestorm. So, um, yeah, why add why add another distraction at this time, um, and particularly yeah. a, 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 a heavily licensed um, distraction? Because the great thing about the dystopian um, material, uh, uncharted seas, firestorm, and so on, is that uh, while was Exodus and everything else is they are they may have been something from spartan or it may have been something from outlaw at some point in its life but they are now you know they are now part of war cradle they're all that they're war cradles ips and we're going to make sure that we treat them as reverently as as we can but we also have the latitude to make changes and improvements where you know where where we feel they need to be and with a with a, a license like that um, that isn't necessarily, yeah. You know, well, certainly it has other complications um, to the yeah. process, and, and at this stage, that isn't something we're looking to explore with it. No, I mean, I think it, it was fairly clear from my side, but just to just to underline that for anybody who had any doubts in their mind listening. So the other one, of course, is Uncharted Seas, which I think people were perhaps a little bit surprised that you mentioned because effectively Spartan did kill Uncharted Seas. Well, they didn't quite kill it. They just said it would not be developed in the immediate future until things got better, which I mean, kind of meant it, that it was killed. It kind of didn't really <laughs> exist to begin with. It was kind of like half making something and then knocking it down. I don't, I don't know. I didn't feel like it was there at all, really. Uh, well. It was never big. It wasn't. No. no. It didn't have the success of the other of the other games. It has and... potential. It certainly has potential. It's just because they had dystopian, it was already like they had a C game, I feel. Yeah, it, it certainly didn't receive much much attention, and there was the announcement probably about a year ago now that it would be effectively shelved Stopped. indefinitely. So again, it was received, I think, with surprise 
but happy surprise by a lot of people that you will be doing something with Uncharted Seas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe that was a shorter answer than the Halo one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, so, yes, we are. We've got lots of... Uh, we have a design team, a development team, sorry, working on Uncharted Seas. Um, we will have something fabulous to show in you know in 2018 on it but uh not at this time sure sure uh, i think at the moment just that uh, people know it's an actively developed and designed for game is is a good thing mm. oh yeah you'll see it you'll see it before um and uh, before some of the other um some of the other games that we're we're working on it's definitely it's definitely up there in our uh schedule and the, the other thing is unlike uh, i mean spartan uh, spartan are a great company uh, i you know i think um neil the passion neil had for or and has for gaming and for what he was doing is evident um and i think it, it's a terrible shame that things ended up the way they did uh, because i think he had you know i think he had with originating um, so many ideas, and as I say, and you know, I, I spoke to him many times at shows and and um, and on the phone and so on. And, um, yeah, he's a he's a yeah he's a great gamer, and I think it's 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 unfortunate with not just the, with the decline of Spartan, but obviously with the um, he was a man that had lots and has lots and lots and lots of ideas. And okay, perhaps sometimes that meant that um, things like Uncharted Seas. I know he was he was really passionate about um, seeing that seeing that become a success, and um, and that can be that can be a real frustration. Uh, so it, uh, I, yeah, I, I think it there is the opportunity now that okay, it's not going to be Neil's um, the way Neil would have necessarily done it, but there is an opportunity at least that something is going to come of of all these great ideas that he. Um, that he's sort of championed, that there is going to be a an uncharted seas of some form, that that dystopian is is we hope is going to go from strength to strength in um, in the dystopian age. Uh, Firestorm is uh, has got a, a bright future, uh, we hope. Once we've um, given it a little bit of a polish, but we'll talk about that in a bit. So yeah, I, I think um, I think as a gamer. Uh, I, I, I can, I can see the passion that, uh, that, that was there in the origins of these games. And yes, uh, you're right. Um, I think Dystopian Wars did so well that it meant that something like, uh, Uncharted Seas would struggle, um, in the same, in the same space, uh, with, with how Spartan was. And they had, they were rich in ideas and limited in the ability to execute them. Uh, because Spartan, yes. <laughs> yeah, Spartan was Spartan was a relatively modest-sized company. Yeah, it, 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 and, and in all credit to them, they massively punched above their weight. You know, they they did they produced products that actually, for the size they were and the way that they they were structured, um, should have been you know a, a, a Herculean task. So yeah, as I say, um, yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to say that oh, they're, they're te- terrible. They were. They did some great stuff. Um, I think it's just unfortunate then that so once Dystopian Wars was doing well, that meant that Uncharted Seas first edition was going to go was going to be kind of left on the step, 
And then conversely, when Halo then came along and that started to do really well, it meant that the development time and the, and the resource for Dystopian Wars or Halo was not necessarily uh, for um, Firestorm was not necessarily was not necessarily because there was only a finite amount of things that they could do at any one time. Uh, yeah, with yeah. with War Cradle, we have. I mean, we're not we're not a vast studio of any stretch of the imagination, but we do we have sub um, subgrouped the studio, so we do have people working on the dystopian age. So that's Armored Clash, Dystopian Wars, and so on all together. We also have people working on Firestorm, and we also have people working on Uncharted Seas. So we are able to to, to develop these these um, these IPs separately and simultaneously. Yeah. So. Uh, interesting point you mentioned that that uh, Spartan had a sort of limited capacity, uh, but lots of ideas because there were a lot of ideas that came from Spartan. Uh, so a lot of game systems uh, that kind of had gaming ADHD. So you know there was a space fighter combat game, uh, a board game that they announced, uh, which obviously didn't happen. Uh, they announced Project Gotadamarung, Um they had you know, a couple of fast play versions of the games, which were really different games. So I'm thinking of uh, Firestorm Task Force and the fleet action game for Dystopian. So what reassurances can you give to to the community about you know War Cradle's capacity to deal with that? Or in other words, does War Cradle have the same sort of gaming ADHD that uh, that Spartan did? Oh, we all like shiny toys, and the um, <laughs> and the problem with with a game studio is that you, in theory, you have the ability to whatever you think is important right now. You have the ability to make that the focus for right now. Um, but uh, no, I don't. I don't think we're going to make because we come from Wayland Games, and so because the commercial side of things is really important to us. Uh, so it's not enough to just come up with a great idea for a game. It has to be a great idea for a game and a setting that we think people are actually going to play and that yeah. we think will sell well. And yes, it means that some of the decisions we've taken regarding setting and the practicalities of yeah, little things like the number of factions that a, that a game will have. So when you, you take something like Dystopian Wars, uh, Dystopian Wars has dozens of sub-factions and all sorts of uh, things that are really factions in their own right. Uh, and you look at something like Firestorm, which is crazier, it's like 20 or two, you know, it's, it's insane. Yeah. Um, so uh, from a retail point of view, we know that that's not, that there isn't a model, there isn't a, a business model where your friendly local game store is going to take on 20 separate factions and and stock all of them that's that's odd and and nor would nor does it make a lot of sense to create factions that you know aren't going to sell very well and that you're just going to sell directly anyway that that's that's a weird thing to do because you still need to make sure that they're balanced and make sure that they're as valid a choice as anything else so yeah it's um so we have that has meant that we've ensured that there are less factions, which is where these these large power blocks, essentially, for Dystopian Age have come about, is because... So if you're going to play Dystopian Wars, um, you have eight factions to choose from. Within each of those factions is the richness, and there are, the, you know, there are different themes and other things and other nation aesthetics that make up those factions. So, you know, you, it, it, it isn't just um, bland, uh, you know, 
you have lots of detail, lots of granularity within the faction. But in terms of things to stock and, and things that players, groupings that players fall within, they will fall in one of eight factions for the, um, for the naval game and then the same for Armored Clash. So that's, that's the kind of thing that, that's the kind of, um, mentality that we're, that we're approaching things in. So we are, I would, I would think that we are more commercially minded than some games companies not all because there's some there's some great ones out there but um, some of them are more and this isn't spartan this is but I'm, I'm talking generally now some of them are more hobby companies so you have somebody that's got a little bit of finance and is able to effectively make the games that he or she wants to make and hopefully somebody will buy them um and that's not um that's not really what drives us we we make things because we think they'll be popular and they'll sell and if we don't think it's going to be popular we won't make it yeah excellent thank you you mentioned it just there about being a commercial company the war cradle wayland relationship so some people in the past have had bad experiences uh, and of course any company has its anecdotal experiences but perhaps you can give people a bit of a reassurance of an explain what the relationship between War Cradle and Wayland is. You know, is Wayland just going to be carrying War Cradle games? Is War Cradle just going to be supplying to them? Is it the same group of people? Yeah, I guess those are some of the questions that are flying around in people's sure. minds. It's like, oh, I had to wait three weeks for a delivery or whatever the, the story was. Yeah. Does that mean that's going to be the same with War Cradle? Yeah, I had to wait three weeks for my delivery, so I bet their sculpting's rubbish. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you've, you've got, um, okay. So Wayland Games is, uh, is the online retail, um, part of the business. It's the parent company. So War Cradle Studios is part of Wayland Games in the same way that, uh, I suppose Forge World is part of, um, Games Workshop. Yeah. So the, it, yeah. it is, it is a wholly owned part of, um, part of Wayland Games. Some of the people within War Cradle work for Wayland Games. Um, the, there are others who pretty much 99% of their time is on War Cradle, is on War Cradle things. But of course they all, yeah, we all work in one, well, several large offices. Um, so we have the studio is, is at Wayland Games' head office. The, um, you know, but then the, you know, the customer service people who, um, help with the war cradle, um, customer service. So like parts and other bits and pieces, they're also the same team, um, or they're part, uh, many of them are in the same team that deal with, um, customer service queries for, for Wayland. Uh, I mean, I think it's in terms of the, when you said about anecdotal stuff, I think it's the same as we sort of said that the, you know, there's been this, um, some unrest in the dystopian community. Usually, people only ever say anything if they've got if they're passionate, if they've got a reason to say something. So, if people don't, so again, so if somebody really, really hates something, or even if they don't like something, that needs to be shared. That needs to be talked about. That doesn't mean that their their experience or what they're feeling is wrong. It doesn't mean that it's not valid, but it needs to be taken in proportionally. That for every person with that experience, there are possibly one other person who's had a, a, an equally stunningly positive experience. And then hundreds of people that aren't going to go on social media, aren't going to go on forums 
who have had either good, average, no comment or not not brilliant experiences, you know, and everything in between. And they're the people. So really, we only tend to see the extremes of the conversation. We, we very rarely see the, the vast, vast majority that are kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, I think if if the negative perception that some people believe um, some companies have were true, um, they would all, you know, those companies couldn't possibly be in business because nobody would, you know, obviously nobody's going to eat their food or shop there or, or wear their stuff or, or, or whatever it is. And yeah, it's the same with, with Wayland. So yes, uh, of course, there are people out there who have had, you know, for a number of reasons, stuff going missing in the post or whatever the reason is, um, they have um, not had the service that they'd expected. But it's also true that there are lots of people that have had great service or they've had exactly what they wanted and, and, and so on. And Wayland could not have been as successful, um, you know, I mean, and it's, you know, it's significantly, you know, uh, it could not have been successful as it, as it has been. In, uh, to be able to run, I mean, War Cradle isn't making money. How could it be with the amount of money that's been invested in production and staff and development and everything else? So Wayland is the one that has has funded that, you know, uh, and that, so the relationship is that Wayland is the um, up until recently, Wayland was the what was the powerhouse behind War Cradle? Wayland is the is the thing that enables War Cradle to to do the creative part. Uh, but obviously now War Cradle now we have Wild West Exodus released. Now we have you know the first of the Dystopian Wars products in in development, and and, and we have other things in the pipeline. Um, that's War Cradle is now producing um, producing things, and people are responding to it really well. So that's going to change, but. Um, no, absolutely. Wayland is, uh, is, is a crucial part of War Cradle. And as I say, the, the, the attitude and the experiences of, I mean, Wayland's been around for like a decade. Uh, the, the experiences of that company being successful in doing what it does have enabled War Cradle to, you know, to sort of take the risks and, um, and, and, and develop things the way, the way that it is today. So yeah, I wouldn't, I, there is there's no sense of even trying to put any distance between the two because they are two sides of the same of the same coin. Great, thank you. You mentioned the Firestorm universe, and inevitably we were going to come to that point. Yes, <laughs> unfortunately, now, that's all that's all the time we have. So. That's all <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned Firestorm really is going to be late 2018, early 2019. So we're talking at least a year before we're going to be seeing developments on version three. So what happens in the interim? Well, yeah, I mean, there is a thing about us managing people's expectations because uh, <laughs> the lot, what we didn't want to do, we don't want people to be thinking that Firestorm, and I'll be honest, it's because it's, it's not bad enough. It's, it's to be expected, but we've already got, all of the dystopian wars community and the armored clash players and everyone else that are going, well, come on then. Where's, where is the game? What's the rules? Um, how, how does force organization work? How does, um, you know, is this mechanic staying? What's happening with this? What's your thoughts on this miniature and so on. And it's, these things take time and they take more time 
I mean, it's it's amazing how many experts there are on game development out there. Um, but it, 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 the community <laughs> Most of them not in game development, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 indeed. Um, uh, but one of them has a one of them does have a cousin or a brother who who, who did a Kickstarter <laughs> once, so they know all about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so these things do take time, and they take a, they take a lot of time, particularly if you want to well, hopefully get it right. And so um, the last thing we would have wanted to do is to yeah, Firestorm. Let's uh, we, yeah, we're looking at the beta test for Firestorm now. Um, yeah, that that'll be coming out soon, and then obviously nothing happens for months and months and months, and the Firestorm yeah. community is feeling like oh, it's just like it was before, where all the focus has been given to one game, and we're promised something, and then it doesn't happen. So we try to be as as upfront and honest and open as we could about it and said, look, and because of so with dystopian, we knew we knew actually even before we made an offer to um, um, to purchase the um, the IP that we knew we had very clear plans in mind for the kind of thing. I mean, we we didn't know its final form, but for the kind of thing we wanted to do with the IP. Whereas um, with Firestorm, there's a lot more work is needed. Not not because Firestorm's terrible; it's not. I mean, I've, I've talked about this before um, elsewhere. The background for Firestorm is it's okay. It's um, it has there are problems with it. Uh, Dystopian Wars had them as well. Where Dystopian Wars is effectively three big alliances, and then lots and lots and lots of races or lots and lots of factions. Um, and so we've looked to make that eight big factions with comprising of less nations and and so on. Um, the Firestorm has two it has two factions. It essentially, it has two grand alliances, and everybody theoretically within each alliance is is kind of on the same side as each other. So it's um, that already kind of takes away a lot of the um, kind of the drama and the drive and the opportunity for having games actually count for something rather than it all being a kind of blue on blue. Oh, the Aquans and the Terrans have decided that they're going to... Oh, there's been a little misunderstanding between them, but uh, it'll all be kisses and cuddles by the end of the day or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's a bit... Yeah, so that needs changing. And the other thing... That's not to say that everybody's going to hate everybody, but let's let's give agency and reason for each of the... You know, for each of these factions, each of these powers to be able to play against each other in a tabletop war game. Shocking. Um, the other, um, the other part is that the background is, yeah, it, it's okay. It's um, there's nothing. Thin. Yeah, mm. there's nothing particularly unique and special about Firestorm. I mean, okay, yeah, it, it's it's got some recognisable names. You've got your biotech race, and you've got your. But then, actually, when we start to look at the models, the miniatures are the miniatures aren't bad, and there's some interesting stuff for sure. But they, so like the Cerellians, look at the Cerellians. So the Cerellians are lizards. Yeah. There isn't anything about them. And I'm not saying their ships need to look like giant lizards, but there isn't anything about the ships that be, the narrative for the faction doesn't really tie into the ships at all. I mean, yeah, you could say, um, you could actually say that the Relfosa, um, had, you know, if you didn't know, you could just switch the names of the factions and switch the background of the factions, and you could still use the same ships. Uh, you know, there isn't anything inherently there 
that does that. When you get to Planetfall, it's different because they, you know, obviously, because you then start to see more relatable um, miniatures and creatures and things. And funny enough, the all the points I made about Armored Clash come into play again. Um, but um, but certainly at the kind of the the space scale for you know the vast scale that you you talk about with Firestorm, the ships and the narrative are largely divorced from each other. You know, I mean the. Yeah, they really aren't hugely related to each other. Uh, so the directorate, why do their ships look the way they do? You know, what is it about? So they're you know they're, they're the big commerce people, cool. So why do their ships look like that? What you know what is the what where is the commercial thing about it? Is it um, and you know in the narrative where's the where's the driver that kind of explains that? Whereas I would have... No, I actually know the there is an actually an answer <laughs> to that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, the classic UFO-style thing is aren't the director of the people who first co- took that tech from those aliens killed the off the Sabulon. race and stole Yes. S- Bonus points to anybody out there who remembers this. The Sabulon were a race that the directorate encountered that had the classic UFO saucer shape that the original directorate frigates looked like. Uh, and they murdered them all and stole their tech and used it for their ships, which is why the directorate ships like have that uh, sort of plated, uh, round look. look. Right. Less so in the new models, but you definitely. See, new yeah. models. You see, that would make sense if that was a particular nation, or sorry, not a nation, a particular world. So if that was the humans, that was how the humans got space travel, as it were. But the directorate aren't really one species as it well they are but they're 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 they commerce <laughs> they're, they're the ferengi they're the um they're the grand businessmen of the uh yeah they're the they're the commercial evil overlord type guys uh, why haven't they just got the best technology and the best things of all the races and 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 come up with so okay yeah they might have they might have murdered one group of people why haven't they bought the technology and stolen and infiltrated and got all the best tech from everybody and they've got a, um a, and you have so you've got people at like hawker industries and you've got all these other companies and corporations and other bits and people why why is that not something so that they are all sorts of different commercial and um uh you know uh, and um so all, all of that side of things all of the grand um, grand schemes and things. Why is that not something that they're exploring? And so, yeah, I, look, I, I, I take a, the reasoning behind that, but I, I just I don't think that's particularly. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's. I'm just I'm not sure that's. I'm not sure that's enough. I think, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could do, you could do more with that. We were and... being slightly unfair on that. Yeah, kind of. well, <laughs> I, yeah, just because we're nerds uh, that we knew that. But, no, 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 but, um, no. But it's, it's, I take your point. It's good, but I, I just think that there could be more. I mean, uh, for example, yeah. why are the director again? We, we keep, we keep talking about the directors. We started. Why are the directorate not? Why are they part of the um, uh, Zenian League? Why are they not? Um, why are they not in on everybody's side? Because surely they could be. You know why? Why? You know, if you made them more of a kind of a, they could almost be a, a, a middle a middle faction. You know, if you would have these two big power blocks, and then you could have the the directorate leading all of the other various um, business and, and commercial and the guilds and all the other stuff, and there could be a you could have that as a kind of a as a third block, as it were, because they 
you know, they will ally with, <clears throat> they will support, they will undermine, they will protect anybody that it makes sense to for their own particular goals. So, you know, they're, they're less, less, you know, they're less, they're less bothered about morals. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and as, you know, aspects of, um, jingoism or nationalism or, um, you know, planetary borders and things. I mean, they don't, they don't care about any of that because it, you know, it, they, they'll strip mine planets if they, you know, because the resources are there, but also if it makes sense to, protect a beautiful world because they get lots of rich people to go big game hunting on it or um, or doing something else then they'll do that you know it, it, it doesn't it, the, the right and wrong of something doesn't really come into it and and i think that's that's interesting so that that kind of thing could be explored but i think look rather than doing like a band-aid and just saying okay let's just get some more information on these there's the opportunity to really you look at all of the all of the nations, all of, in fact the whole setting of Firestorm. I think is there yeah. is there something we can really give this a you know a, a, a vibrant, exciting um, update. And so one of the reasons why um, it's going to take longer to get this to where it is is um, we are in talks and we're working with um, some sci-fi authors. When you know, we're not we're not not in a position to start naming names but we're we're working with a number of um you know potential potential authors who are going to work with us um to really develop a a, a new and exciting setting of course there'll be there'll be things there'll be you know touchstones for people it's not we're not gonna be it's not gonna be just completely unrelatable um but it will be exciting and it will be um it will be a a new firestorm um, Firestorm game and um, sort of going forward. That's before we've even looked, yeah, before we've even talked about the rules. We're talking about the setting, about just yeah. really making it um, as exciting and unique and special and identifiable. I mean, how great would it be for there to be a Firestorm novel that people buy the Firestorm novel because they love sci fi and oh, yeah, there, there, there's a game about this as well. Oh, cool. You know, it's, you know, a, a background where the background is so good or it's so interesting that it's worth reading about on its own, yeah, with with yeah. no connection That's to the game. We always missed because yeah. we love fluff. We've been playing since version one of the game, mm. and um, we you know, the fluff as it is has always been thin. We've well, always we tend to always make up our own fluff. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you do what you do for the for the game. Now I know Stuart, you and I have talked before, and you have mentioned some of the names that that obviously we can't say here. Yeah, and. You know, obviously, as invested as I have been in the Firestorm universe, I'm still incredibly excited about the possibilities of this. Oh, um, so am I. Just hearing this discussion is making me feel like, ooh, like I'm just starting to reap it for the first time, kind of excited, yeah. you know. And if, and if you knew the names, you, you would, yeah, and you've got anything to do with sci-fi, you would, you, you'll be likewise enthused. So it, it's great to hear, and I think, you know, taking the time to do it properly is absolutely for me, oh, the right course yeah. of action. I mean, what's a year going to do, honestly? Well, I mean, it's not like, as you said right at the beginning of the, the show, it's not like there aren't a lot of games to play, right? Well, yeah, and, and it's also, right, for us as a studio, and this is something where I think Spartan uh, and other game companies, they do get it right um, be, uh, because from a game studio, from a publisher, regardless of how many things you're developing at the same time, there is only one thing in terms of a message 
you need to be telling people what you believe is the most exciting thing this month. And I think if you if you know if you try and do kind of oh well we've done a little bit of firestorm but it's still not quite out and we've done a little bit of dystopian age and it's still not quite where it should be and so actually there's nobody gets anything to really be excited about because essentially they've all just had like little little morsels of something. Um, it's different once a game's released and once it, it sort of starts to get a life of its own because you can then. So while this Exodus, although it's obviously got a lot of love coming for it um, over the next couple of years because we built up a big big release schedule for it, but the material for Wild West Exodus is more about um, often rather than like a big splurge like we did when we launched it. It's now about having regular quality material coming out, you know, pretty much every month for the next you know, next couple of years just because and we've got some you know phenomenal stuff in the pipe for it but that's and that's the right way where, where it goes wrong is is you go okay this this month we're all getting very excited this this quarter we're getting very excited about firestorm so uh, obviously we're going to pretend that nobody plays any of the other games because they're going to get nothing for the next uh, next three or four months <laughs> that's yeah that's that's not that's not how it should be but i think it's i think it's fine to say okay firestorm's coming out in whatever the month would be and so actually that's the thing that we're going to be really talking about and really getting excited about in this month. Obviously next month and the previous month and all the months thereafter, we'll continue to have Wildless Exodus and, Dy- and Dystopian Wars and Armored Clash and everything else. But in this particular month, in the, in the launch month, this is the big focus for the, you know, this is, this is where all the, all the conversations are going because actually we all like games and it'd be then bear in mind that we don't charge for our rule books anyway. So it'd be kind of cool if all the dystopian players and all of the armor clash players and all of the wild West Exodus players picked up a copy of the rule book when the firestorm rule book comes out and go, oh, okay, yeah, I've look at this. I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll have a demo or whatever. So, you know, I think that's, that's right. And so because of that, we firestorm needs to come out, at a point when it can have its moment in the sun, as it were, it, there's no point bringing it out and, you know, and it's right on top of Armored Clash. Or it's right on top of Dystopian Wars or whatever else we're going to be, we're going to be doing. It needs to have its own, its own moment to be the cool thing. And then, uh, and then it can join the, the pantheon of monthly releases and everybody can continue to get excited. But yes, yeah, so that's, that's where we are with it. So we are working on the background. I've, um, already started conversations with um, with a few of the uh, gaming groups and, and development groups who had been working on the ill-fated third edition or the 3.0 of um, Firestorm. And yeah, we'll look at game mechanics and things. I mean, to a degree, game mechanics are going to be um, dependent, because I said before about the narrative being really key to the to the development of the game itself. So there is going to be an aspect of that, but some of the core parts of how the game works, you know, that stuff that we are, you know, we in the new year, we're going to start to, we're going to start to look at that um, because, yeah, we, we've got the time to make these, um, to make these changes and really get it as, as fantastic as it can be. Um, so there's no point just sort of sitting on our hands for, for a year and then jumping all over it at the end of at the end of the year and realize we've only got three months until we want to release it so let's uh yeah we're gonna you know, we're gonna take our time with it and get it right but absolutely we're gonna start those conversations um throughout 2018 firestorm will be will be taking shape fantastic 
And as part of the Firestorm universe, uh, and we mentioned it just uh, just at the beginning of this conversation, was uh, is Planetfall. Yes. Now, Planetfall also coincidentally a ten millimeter uh, game. I don't know whether that played into the the discussion with the Flash at all. <laughs> but it's <laughs> yeah, a remarkable coincidence, that, isn't it? Yeah. But under Spartan's tutelage, it uh, for me it was a big missed opportunity. I don't think I made any secret of this at the time. It didn't succumb uh, to anything, and it didn't work with Firestorm. Just say it, come on. Yeah, well, it had a different sort of background. It didn't sort of jide with its own stuff. They had a very different aesthetic for ground models than a lot of the Nothing Firestorm. coincided with each other. Everything from the races was wrong. Uh, well, well oh, come on. there were some, cool some cool models. There were some cool models. Cool models. Uh, the rules evolved we can faster than the thing. We can literally summarise the like decisions with Fluff with one model, and that is the Cerulean Leviathan. Yes, okay. So, I, I don't know if you know the story of the Cerulean Leviathan in, in Planet 4, Stuart. Go on. Okay, so, so basically, this is the big uh, dinosaur. It's model. basically a massive dinosaur with a gun platform on the back. Yes, which is which is fine. You know, I like a big giant dinosaur lizard when you know when it comes to it. But the thing is, the fluff behind it is it it is an ancient cerulean, which a revered uh, yeah. member so of its race. You're, you're, yes. you're attaching a howitzer to grandpa. Yeah, okay. Yeah, That's but right. the thing is, it's like, surely you would protect these With mines. no armour. <laughs> yeah, give it no armour and put a nose ring on it. <laughs> give it a nose ring so you can pull it along like a bull. Yeah. Where you're fighting stuff that has, for example, the Dendrenzi Leviathan, which has yeah. two rail guns for arms. <laughs> so, so there was a lot of interesting discussion in the community, let's say, <laughs> regarding Planet 4. And the, the fluff was only one part of it, because the rules, uh, version 1 was basically obsolete when it was released. So the rule book, the printed rule book, was actually inaccurate on the day of release. Version uh, 2 was actually quite plain. It was errated <laughs> to, to death. Version 2 hasn't actually come out, but the... But the yeah. But a lot of the... There was almost a, a weekly release at some points on some of these stats for the game, so they were changed and changed and changed. I feel like it was okay if you wanted to quickly kill stuff. You know, it was quite enjoyable and, at times, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, and the result was that a game of Planetfall could take ten minutes. It would never go beyond five turns. We uh, did how many? Never went beyond turn three usually. No three. That was the same. Uh, <laughs> because stuff used to die so quickly, so you could put stuff on the table and it would die before you even got a chance to activate it. Planetfall was obviously a much Less mature rule set than Firestorm. What, what's going to be your approach to, to Planetfall? Do you start off from version 1.5 or 2 that was in development, or are you taking a completely fresh look at it? Uh, it'll be completely fresh. I mean, uh, yeah, we will look at it. Uh, we will look at it fresh in the same way that Dystopian Wars um, and Armored Clash are looked at afresh. That's not to say that it won't necessarily have rules carried over um you know we're, we're going to take our time we'll look we'll look through it we haven't started to look at planetfall yet um one of the things i would say though is that and this is again this ties back to how people look at the narrative for dystopian age and they're only looking at it from the point of view of dystopian wars or what have you and they say well why, why is this why is the narrative not just always about war and conflict and fighting it seems bizarre for a war game it's like well because dystopian age isn't a war game dystopian age is the setting that includes yeah. war games and other things um when we just talk about the background from the point of view of the naval units then of course it's going to be all about the navy and all about those and, and you know and the factions will have a particular slant on them 
from the naval conflict because that's what that part of the game is about or that part of the world is about. But overall, the overall setting is is lots of different things in there. Um, and, and similar to um, with Firestorm, so we're going to work on and we're going to develop this this new setting, this new um, new fresh take on the world or the or the, the universe, um, and that will be the setting for both of the games. And so then, when we do the background for when, when we then do the slant for Planetfall, and when we do the slant for Armada, it will be done um, from that same common point so that there is kind of a joined joined upness to the whole to the whole thing and it's over the factions the faction background is developed as part of the overall setting and then using that as the platform um that that's your concrete base that's what you then build your house on and so that's what you then build your firestorm house on or your armada house on and that's what you then build your your planet for one on so it's all come from the same place you've not got i know masters of nanotechnology um, in one game, um, then running around with people or big spiders in suits, and it's like, but your nano masters, what, what, why is that even a thing? Yeah, we, yes. What, why? Um, well, yeah, we, because we yeah, got, that was one of the questions we had. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'll just mention, and people out there will know this: the dragonfly model. Yeah. So we will say no more than yeah. that. <laughs> we, yeah, because yeah. because we're giant spiders. Yeah, yeah, but we're... But you're we're... really intelligent and make nanotech. Why would you risk yourself? Yeah. Aren't they afraid of death or something? And, but that's why we have big flying men. No, no. Well, yeah, we're, we're humans. That, <laughs> well, doesn't no, mean we our, that doesn't mean our spacecraft look like people. It's not like Mega Maid <laughs> going around. Uh, it's, yeah, it, that doesn't make sense. Yes, so so that's the kind of thing where, look, if, on the other hand, and in all, you know, if, because we are developing it all as a whole, we go, actually... It'd be really cool if there was a kind of like big biotech spiders or whatever rampaging around. That would be really cool in the game. Well, then we'll just make sure that the narrative, that the background for that faction reflects the fact that that's how that they operate. So don't make them necessarily yeah. nanomasters. Make that somebody else. And, and instead say, actually, these guys, for whatever reason, that's how they fight because they are – or maybe, you know what, maybe they are um, – an intelligent race of uh, like biomechanoids or something, and their um, their their species has and has almost like the Borg, but they're not humans; they're arachnid or arachnid equivalent, and they've they've become almost integrated into technology from birth. And so the big spider things that are running around, no, that is actually them. That is their that that is the size of them. So it yeah, at, at ten millimeters, they are the size of a friggin' tank because. Because yeah. that's what they are, you know. So Already sounds. I don't better. think it matters which you choose, as long as it's, as you say, it's consistent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pick one. Yeah. Well, for example, the big, the big lizard thing. It's like, no, it's not an elder. Just call it one. Of, just call it a massive feral thing that lives in the yeah, deserts of a cerulean yeah, planet. Big, big beast of oh, burden oh. on their home world, which they you know, conveniently. Oh, look, here we go. We could stick a big on. thing on this big ass lizard, and it would work. It's not intelligent, but it rides into battle in this thick hide armor. You could, yeah, and you could say if you want to tie into the whole lizard aesthetic, um, because yeah, because again, I mean, orcs run around on giant squigoths, but, you know, but that's that's inherent within the way that their faction works. It's not a. Yeah, they don't necessarily run around in a giant orc, although in the background, <laughs> squeaks, squeaks, squeaks and orcs are related. But uh, 
But yeah, you, could, have, you could say that... At least squeaks of armour. Yeah, you could say <laughs> that this giant, um, this giant lizard um, is a very, 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 very distant offshoot of the same sort of genetic line that the Cerulean's come from. And then you say, look, okay, so he is... This is related to us in the same way that perhaps, I don't know, the orangutan is related to um, is related to man. So we're not we're not it's not the same species, but it's in the same ballpark. And uh, and so, yeah, we're not we're not going to put put the guy in a suit and tie and, you know, and start giving him a job. But on the other other hand, we treat him a little bit more respectfully than perhaps we would treat a cow, you know, as an example. Um, So, yeah, yeah, so that. So there are again, there are ways to do that, you know, to explain why, you know, any technologically advanced race would bring an animal into battle. Um, you know, a gunfight. Well, yeah, with a, with a gun. Yeah, you just did. So explain it. And, look, and conversely, if you're saying, no, actually, um, yeah, no, we'd like the idea of having dinosaur, evolved dinosaur men riding dinosaurs. Cool. Well, then let's, let's let's make them all about that. Then let's make them like dino riders properly. Let's have pterosaurs rather than aircraft, and have the pterosaurs with like you know laser pods and and, and other kind of upgrades and, and armor and, and other cool things. And let's do um, let's have like velociraptor shock troops, and then you have to have like a handler, and the handler is of this. Uh, and maybe there's an again in the background. You then say, well, okay, well then the lizard men they have an arrogance because um, they they treat the other lizard creatures like they're literally just fodder, like they, they, they yeah, the beasts of burden. But um, maybe there's a there's a, a movement, a terrorist movement of their own people within their society that are saying, no, actually they're they're not they're not that far removed from us. Or um, or, or in the breeding program, what if they're um, mentally, if they're given drugs and things to make them either more aggressive or more more subservient? What if they're given shock collars or control um crowns or something to, to is to effectively they've enslaved their genetic cousins um so yeah there, there, there's all sorts of cool things you can do with the idea um rather you've already than, kind of brought in saurians because they rely on more they rely more on tech than the cerulians do so they could just think that that was wrong yeah plus the, the aquans have already got fish riders so i mean you're just describing that <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, I thought of the fish riders then, and I wasn't going to mention them. But... Well, you see, again, <laughs> see, if it was just switched. Fish riders. So, so the Aquans do have a little bit of a problem, whereby <laughs> they're, they're, they're an aquatic species um, who really like aquatic planets, which um, it's a bit like in Warhammer or you know, the Fishmen faction, where there, there is no Fishmen faction because you can't have one force playing underwater and the other and the other force playing. Well, I mean, there is a reason that, like... There it, is a fishman factor. You just never see them. All, all, of their, water. all of their spaceships are filled with water. Yes, their I tanks are filled with water. Yes, get that. So why are they running round on the battlefield? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and yeah, okay, that's, that's interesting. But because actually being inside water is fine, because in the same way that humans, if we're fighting on Mars in tanks, well, our tanks will be filled with air, because... We yeah. we can't live on the surface of Mars either, you know. So I've got. So we wouldn't exactly have horses running around yeah, as cattle, right? <laughs> but yeah, exactly. You don't then, or you don't then have loads of guys, you know. And if it is that fragile, you have people wearing more like kind of like your mobile infantry, your space marine power armor, rather than 
wearing essentially uh, lycra bodysuits and little bubble helmets and uh, yeah, and or, 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 hold, or scuba gear and you know off we go like something out of a James Bond film. That's not that that's that's not a plan for a faction. I don't think anyway. So, no. so you're not making Mars attacks then? Okay. Well, Damn. Again, <laughs> like, you see, within its own within its own kind of visual, Mars attacks is great. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but just why? Um, but don't try and if you're going to have again, this is one of the things which is why we're working with um, you know decent authors that know what they're talking about, um, rather than my ramblings, is that um, work on the setting and decide what kind of sci-fi it's going to be. You know, is it going to be like kind yeah. of a a really hard sci-fi kind of, um, um, you know, really, uh, um, you know, technology unchained kind of uh, kind of environment. Is it going to be more of a kind of a, like a Mars Attacks, more of a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek kind of um, sci-fi thing? Is it going to be more like a Star Warsy thing or a Babylon Five thing or a Star Trek or what kind of what type of science fiction is it going to be? And then once you do that, it, it all has to then fit in that. You can't. You can't have a world where, because whatever the, the whatever the lowest common form of sci-fi is in that world, well then that's the sci-fi you have. So if you had a if you had a game where you have the Mars attacks aliens in it, then it doesn't matter how hard sci-fi the rest of the world pretends to be. Essentially, it's all just the Mars attacks uh, way of doing things, and everything else is got pretensions and delusions of grandeur because it's you know you you need to have the world has to be consistent and cohesive within itself. So if you're going to go the hard sci-fi route, it all needs to be really kind of cool and, um, yeah. and, and, and deep. And, um, and as I say, you probably don't want to go around the, um, you know, the Dino Riders, um, 1980s toy route. <laughs> you want to, you probably want to do something <laughs> a little bit more, um, yeah, like the culture refined. or something yes. for me in, in banks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's hard sci-fi. Yes, that's good. That kind you of. You don't thing. find aliens blowing up because they're having music played at them. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but so so pick one, and that's then what you explore. So you put your exactly. flag somewhere rather than trying to have a hodgepodge. Because as I say, then whatever the most ludicrous part of it is, that's your. Um, that's your world. And funnily enough, actually, we're going through the same thing with dystopian wars and the dystopian age, because for some people, um, kind of trying to have all of these different, um, having Wildwest Exodus as part of it in particular. So they are looking for the most out there, not ludicrous, but certainly the most out there, the most extraordinary miniature in the Wildwest Exodus world. And rather than that being an exception, rather than the rule, even in Wild West Exodus, they're looking at that and going, "So this is this is the this is the level that my that my Victorian super science game has has come to. It's come to a I don't know a guy on a horse with two giant cannons strapped to the side of it. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's where that's where we've fallen, kind of thing. And it's like, no, uh, yeah, the, that that particular model is." Um, unusual, even in Wild West Exodus, but, <laughs> but I totally, I totally get why that would be the case, and you know, and 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 I think that that will be the same with Firestorm. Whatever we, whatever level you know we go and it, it gets pitched at, we need to make sure that eventually the whole range is kind of consistent with that with that vision. Yeah, and it's great to hear that there is going to be oh, this definitely. this level of thought and consistency throughout it. It really feels yeah. 
you know, it's good to hear. Really nice. It is. Now, I just make up stuff on the fly in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We do too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite funny, though, just that whole talk of, like, pick a sci-fi. You know, you can't have both. It's just literally, I want to scream that at whoever directed the new Star Wars. Is. I, I was just, <laughs> funny enough, uh, when you were saying that, Stuart, I was just thinking, I, for some reason, we might have last night at the cinema. <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's not go back there. Let's not go back there. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because then the argument becomes actually um, is Star Wars science fiction. Yeah, right. Might, be, opera, might, right, might be set in space. Might be set yeah. in space, but it doesn't make it sci-fi. Mm. <laughs> anyway. That's a, that's a, that's another podcast, I think. <laughs> it is entirely, isn't it? Yeah, the nature of sci-fi. Oh, God, there have been arguments about that on the forums before. So... <laughs> Moving swiftly. Yeah, let's leave it to forums for now. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what's the message then to to Firestorm and Planetfall players uh, at the moment, Stuart? What should they What should they be doing? Uh, well, the message, other than Bar Week, Grana Week, Minibank, which is I find the uh, the universal message of peace, is um, yeah. No, it's about look. We are. Please be rather than being frustrated. Please be reassured that the time we're taking with it, we just want to make it brilliant. The uh, in some ways, Firestorm. And, you know, I'll speak plainly. Uh, Firestorm suffers from the same problem I think that Uncharted Seas suffers from, which is that both of them, to a degree, certainly in their early days, cashed in on the fact that Games Workshop's um, similar game um, was not something that Games Workshop were necessarily pushing or exploring. So Uncharted Seas, I think, absolutely made some initial headway because Man of War wasn't you know kind of sparked the interest and then went and so in fact to the point that i think man of war's legend is greater than the game ever was um and uh contentious and um the, and it's the same i think with so you have battlefleet gothic which a lot of people enjoyed and other science fiction yeah i mean it's not the only sci-fi um space combat game but certainly probably the one that a lot of people um, are familiar with uh and most of them have gone, you know, for, for, for various reasons or they aren't played so much. So Firestorm has been able to be there with, a, you know, a range of miniatures. Um, some of them are very nice. Um, some of them are, uh, you, know, are, are you know, are passable or, or, or functional, I'm sure. Um, yeah, every, every miniature out there has probably got its fans somewhere. But, um, yeah, I think on one of the things I'm very much looking forward to is the so uh, with the studio we've we've got um we've done a lot of investment in um in our mold making and our tooling and other things i think the um those skills and that um that design work when that gets applied to the ships for firestorm is going to uh, firestorm visually is going to look different because the way that we make miniatures is different to spartan most of spartan stuff was resin cast on a um uh so like a vertical um what's a vertical mold like a drop mold where you have a like a large tray with the the miniature would be uh, the impression would be on the on the base of the mold and then you'd pour the resin in a bit like you'd make a um like a plaster of paris figurine or whatever you'd pour the uh, you pour the resin in or the um, plaster of paris as it would be and then you pop it out of the mold and then and that's why obviously for, particularly for dystopian wars that's why that was really useful because the ships sit on the water so <clears throat> the underside of the miniature can be flat because it's just going to sit on the sit, sit on the surface of the ocean so they're they're, they're 
their manufacturing, and they did, you know, they, they've refined it that particular way of making miniatures. We've got lots of different ways of doing miniatures because obviously we make a, a, a wide variety of miniatures. Um, so one of the things I'm looking forward to is seeing those refined um, and complex uh, manufacturing techniques being applied to the imagination of the designers for for you know, for spaceships. Not all starships have to be sort of long cylindrical objects. You know, they can be going all sorts of different directions and in and have all sorts of different details and things. I mean, there are some I think in the Firestorm setting that are really interesting. The um, uh, what's the one with the transparent um, fighter deck or flight deck in the middle of it? Um, oh, the Ryushi. Yeah, I think I think they've got some interesting designs. Um, I like I don't like how it's executed, but I like I like the idea of the Relfosa with the directions that their stuff can go in. I think that's interesting, um, at least as a as an idea. Um, I think some of the later Cerulean stuff is kind of cool. Um, I'm not a huge fan of personally of any of the Aquan stuff. I, I, I get I get that it's bioorganic or it's, yeah, it's a it's a biotech type thing. I just I'm just not sure. It, it, yeah, it just I don't know. It, it, it's, uh, there's something about it. Um, Oscar's Oscar's astounded. His mouth's agape. He's an Aquan player. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're. I, I, I don't get it, Oscar. Yeah, he's, he's, they either look like large blue poos or, um, or, or or kind of flat manta ray things. Um, I, I get the aesthetic they're going for. Uh, I think certainly the second wave of stuff. I mean, this is true for all the factions. The second wave of stuff is better than the first, of course. But, yeah, um, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, but yeah, um, don't agree with anything else. Well, but... no, of course. <laughs> Uh, I've been yeah. telling him that for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that stuff is generic. I will say that it does have the same. I just think she could do more. It's like, I mean, I'll be honest. I'm not, and this isn't even on. Um, this isn't even on the Aquans now. It's like the Mon Calamari in Star Wars. I'm actually not a huge fan of them either. It's just, they're just. Yeah, yeah. It's a certain aesthetic. I get that. But they're just the ships are. The, the, which which ships are those? The, the lumpy people. The Mon Calamari. Oh yeah, no, I, so, yeah, so the, I, I, I will agree with that. Resistance, a big resistance cruiser, for example. That's a, the one in Force Awakens, in Last Jedi. That's a, yeah, that's yeah, a Mon yeah. Calamari ship. The big home one and the Liberty, which are the big ones from Return of the Jedi. Um, they're all. Yeah, I don't get. I don't like. Yeah, those. they're all Mon Calamari ships, um, and yeah, they're okay. You know, they, they, they just don't. For me, and this, this is a personal thing, and this isn't directing the studio, this is just me personally, um, they don't excite me. I, I just think you can do more. You still have biotechnology, you know, they have that bio look, but just I think it could just be done in a different way. And that's anyway. But the thing is, I yeah. don't sculpt. I'm not a sculptor, I'm not a designer. So the great thing is, is that we have talented people who will, who will, who will do that, <laughs> who will look at that and go, oh, let me go away and. I mean, like Roberto Cirillo, who um, he will he would go away and he will then you know produce twenty thirty radically different designs and you go oh wow I really like where that one's going or what have you and um, yeah and that's that's the great thing about the studio is you've got incredibly talented people and the mo- the model makers are you know really talented and I can't wait to see what they're going to come up with for Firestorm because more so than I mean dystopia the stuff they're working on for dystopian is great. But with Firestorm, because you have all three dimensions to go in. Um, Plus, there's only humans in dystopianists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's right. 
And they're ships, the, so they kind of isn't, have to be yeah. vaguely ship-like. Don't yes, they? because of the way that water works and the, um, yeah, and the yeah. waves and so on. Yeah, I mean, although, you see, see, it's interesting. You mentioned about um, being human. See, this is the other problem with science fiction, and that's why we really want to make sure that we've got people that know what they're talking about and when they're developing the background for it is uh, it doesn't matter if you've got – just because you're saying that something's alien – you're human yeah you're the writers and the designers are human <laughs> so it's not really alien it's just what a human yeah, thinks exactly it's just what a human thinks an alien giant looks like. spider yeah. <laughs> um, i mean if you look in star trek all the aliens in star trek are basically human emotions or human tropes given funny foreheads and things you know i mean the Cardassians yeah. are arrogance uh you know our uh, the ferengi are greed the Klingons are, you know, martial honor and so forth. And yeah, just, they're just different aspects of humanity um, made into an alien culture. So um, I think we can do better than that. And not better than Star Trek, obviously, because it's amazing. But we can, we, can do, <laughs> but we can do better in terms of we can at least at least go to more than a Cornish pasty on the forehead when we go to the aliens for, um, <laughs> for Firestorm. Um, but again, so that's the exciting bit. Um, I mean, like, like, for example... To the um, the Relfosa, to so the Relfosa are masters of nanotechnology. What if they were nanotechnology? Though, what if they were nano in size? What if they were intelligent machines? They weren't actually giant spiders at all. They were an entire bit like the uh, what's the ones out of Stargate? What are they called the um, There's a race in Stargate that are like I mean they're crap because it's like the uh, the the tech yeah the the CGI from the nineteen nineties so they all look like uh, bits of Lego but, um, <laughs> but, but, but an idea they were quite uh, yeah they, they were quite cool yeah the idea that they're uh, like um, they weren't called the replicants or maybe they were called the replicants something like that um, they uh, but they were basically um, yeah little, little building blocks little little nano machines that then can combine together to form bigger nano machines and and so on. Uh, you could have an entire – I mean, there, there's a line of thought in sci-fi which says that actually when we colonize planets, we're not going to go anyway. We'll, we'll send drones or, yeah. or machines and things to do it, and they will build whatever they need to, and they might even build the crew. You know, it, it just it, – yeah. So I, I think that there are things that we can explore. We can have really alien aliens or certainly as, as, as alien as we can make them with our human our human outlooks and so on interesting segue by the way nothing to do with what we've been talking about apart from you mentioned star trek there mm. have you seen star trek discovery i adore star trek discovery i was gonna say what did you think fantastic uh, i also adore the orville um which isn't star trek but it feels very much like um voyager or the next generation um yeah i i think discovery's discovery's terrific uh Discovery is a great update to Star Trek. Star Trek has always reflected the age or the era that it was made in. I mean, bearing in mind, the, yeah. yeah, you've had it in the sixties, you had it in the eighties, you had it in the nineties, and then um, and now again you have it in, you know, in the twenty uh, tens. Uh, so you, yeah, so you look at you look at uh, Star Trek. So the, I mean. In the in the nineteen eighties, because of the way the culture was and the world was, it, uh, you know, psychology was a thing. It was 
unheard of or you know it was it wasn't conceivable that we would have a starship in space without a psychiatrist on board which is essentially what councillor troy was that was a because america that would be how they function you know whereas obviously now we're kind of the other side of that and though we we understand the value in you know in that just having somebody asking people how you feel all day isn't you know isn't necessarily a an integral seventh member of the crew. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And the same with Discovery. So, this Discovery has, there's a maturity, not just in terms of reflecting the world that we live in, which essentially is all television, good uh, good television should do anyway, but also it, um, it, it has the, the, the structure of how we expect television programs to work is there. I mean, I'm also a, I'm also a big fan of Doctor Who. So, and Doctor Who obviously been running for fifty years. So you look at some of the early Doctor Who's, um, and you're thinking, "Well, it's going to get going in a minute." But it's you know, like the first. I mean, Patrick Trout, his last story, the um, uh, uh, War War Games. Um, his last story um, was twelve twelve half an hour episodes long. It's, it's like, so what? Yeah, just, yeah, and and for a lot of it, honestly, you could you could have cut six or seven of them easily and not really lost any of the storyline at all. Um, so, well, I remember watching you know Doctor Who on a Saturday night as a child, and you know, like you say, half an hour episode or whatever it was, yeah. um, which was a small part of the story. That then you had to wait an entire week to find mm-hmm. out what the next part. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. And, because, and now you expect it to be resolved within an hour. You do. Like and, from start and, to finish. And, yeah. and the whole idea of immediate res, so the whole idea of the story picking up midway through the adventure, and you kind of, you then logically deduce what would have happened earlier. Um, that's a thing which would be extremely unlikely in, um, in, yeah. in much earlier things. So I think, and so Discovery, again, so Discovery has much more in common in terms of cinematically how it's produced with something like, I mean, not, but something more like something, you know, Stranger Things or Game of Thrones or, you know, any of these kind of, um, or Westworld or, you know, any of these kind of much more, um, uh, yeah, the HBO style of, uh, of producing, producing television than the next generation or actually it's, it's, it's forebearers. Um, and that's what's interesting, as I say. I, I, I've got a, I really enjoyed Discovery, but I also really enjoyed um, the Orville. Uh, I've just uh, finished watching the first season of the Orville. No, I've not, not seen that. Ah, yes. If you like Star Trek: Next Generation and and Voyager and that kind of that feel for the show, where it's like one big family in space and they've got different adventures every week, um, that's how it feels, and that's actually how it. And actually, it is. It is Star Trek. It's Star Trek in all but name. Right. Um, okay. it's I love Westworld as well, by the way. Yeah, well, that's really, it. really looking forward to this. Yeah, so good. You, 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 you're, yeah, you're both gentlemen of exceptional taste because it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but with the Orville, I, I do recommend the Orville. It's written by Seth MacFarlane, so Family Guy, and you, and you. Oh yeah. yeah. And again, that's the thing where you go into it and you expect it to be funnier than it actually is because it's it kind of puts itself as a kind of a, I don't know, like a space balls or even a galaxy quest kind. In fact, actually. It's, you would go in there expecting it to be, you expect it to be like Galaxy Quest, the TV series, but it's, 
and actually, in some ways, it is. It's got, I mean, you, you've got the guy asking if he can drink soda on the bridge, and uh, the shuttle pilot's nervous who's having a beer as he's uh, as he's as he's bringing the captain aboard, and that kind of. So there's there's absolutely those little moments in it, and the the, the captain's first officer is his ex-wife, and so there's there is there is some there is some humour in it, and some kind of uh, some kind of more grounded humour, but it's also, I mean, the third episode deals with um gender reassignment and it deals with it in uh, in a way much more it takes it takes a much braver stance than any star trek series has ever done uh, probably barring discovery you know, it just it, so it's it's well worth your time um the yeah. character yeah the characters are, the characters are um are fun um it's it's light it, it's a light show on the whole other than a couple of episodes it's a pretty light show um but as i'm saying it fits very much in with the with the style and i said about ref, you know television reflecting the time it's in it very much feels it's feels like it was filmed in the 90s it's it's um <laughs> yeah it is it is a kind of a throwback show but actually sometimes you don't want kind of the stressy grumpy um dark gloomy everything's you know everything's going to be horrendous anytime now because everything's <laughs> shades of gray and complicated and sometimes you just want it to be good guys and bad guys and shoot some yeah. pew pews and uh, walk back to free <laughs> and off we go you know that's 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 kind of what you uh what you want and i guess that's why i also like uh brooklyn 99 and the good place because i've been told brooklyn 99 is really funny but i ha- and good i haven't that's watched it yet though everything you have been told is true Um, and the good place as well is yeah it's just it's just nice it's a it's a good program it's fun you feel for the characters it is funny it's not like pant wettingly funny but it's it'll make you smile as you're watching it and it's um yeah and again they're they're half an hour little light little bites that you can watch while maybe have a bite to eat watch an episode and then get on with the rest of your evening that's that's the only problem at the moment there's a lot of good tv i mean we've got a lot of stuff still to watch and you know Mm. in terms of competing for time with you know other hobby stuff it's uh it's yeah because there's a lot of quality stuff so much stuff anyway massive massive segue there yeah. uh, but but worth it so on the firestorm front you mentioned what uh, people should kind of expect and should be doing now in terms of you know playing the game getting other people into the game can we expect to get original castings available from war cradle or are we waiting for the the new designs uh, and the re-release next year. Uh, are you so? Do you mean are we going to bring out anything for Firestorm before we relaunch the game? I guess. I guess that is the question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people have been uh, asking. We are. Look, we're, we're aware that there is a um, there is demand out there for Firestorm products. Um, we are. Look, we're looking at the game. We're looking at the background. Uh, we're looking at the miniature range, same as we have done for, and we are still doing because it's massive for dystopian. Um, we uh, we are looking at it at the moment. I can't, yeah. You know, I'm I, I don't want to raise hopes and say, oh yeah, for sure. But then on the other hand, I don't want to be saying, um, oh no, 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 it's all going to be brand new stuff. And then, so paradoxically, suddenly we start bringing out new faction starters or whatever. So um, <laughs> it's something we're looking at. Um, we will. You're not going to have to wait till next year at the end of next year before you know what's going to happen. We will. We will make an announcement regarding products. I mean, we've already so there's no look, there's no release for Dystopian Wars at the moment, but we've already started to work on 
several uh, miniatures for dystopian wars which will come out before we do the um before we do the new uh before the new edition comes out so yeah look uh, you'll find out i mean you know alex you you know you you and i are in contact um you know, fairly re- fairly regularly as soon as i have any information on that um obviously it'll be made public but uh you know you, you'll know you'll be absolutely in the loop on it yeah sure yeah, you mentioned the, the you know some of the things you're releasing so the the ice maiden was one of those uh, that was announced yes. as, as a pre-release for next year quite recently slightly controversial because you have reworked the mini from the version on the kickstarter and, how dare and you there were, and, and yet there were <laughs> there were those 10 commandments sitting there on that stone tablet that we inherited <laughs> Yeah, from uh, Shepton Mallet that said, "Thou shalt not touch the ice mate. <laughs> and thou shalt not make it, you know, slightly modular and, and add functionality to it. Certainly, <sighs> well, adding adding play value. Well, you know, we're <laughs> we're, char- we're, char- we're charging a uh, yeah, we're charging the actual price of it, which um, yeah, we, again, we how very it. dare you? <laughs> well, look, I, I get what people are saying. So people, um, and it's difficult because it's like. Um, you know, it's like when um, some, you know, something's gone and then you, you start to get that kind of rose-tinted uh, vision as to how things were. And you go, well, if they were still around, it would have been this way and then this would have absolutely yeah. happened and then this would have happened. Um, you know, yes, so the Ice Maiden was a model in a Kickstarter that never, never completed. Um, we are bringing out a version of the Ice Maiden uh, as a retail product. In um, sort of the early part of next year, I think uh, end of January, beginning of February, kind of time it's it's coming out. Um, yes, it is different. It isn't the same miniature as the Kickstarter for a couple of reasons. Um, one, um, the masters and the material that we got that we didn't get any um, ice maidens in one piece. We got ice maidens that were pretty pretty much there, but they had like chips in them. I mean, bear in mind they've been sculling around in um in spartan's warehouse and then they were sculling around in you know wherever else the intermediate place and then they're in a arctics and so on so you know it's not a surprise that they were a little bit battered um, but also then when we looked at it there were some limitations from the way spartan had to produce it that meant so for example the ice maiden was made in several parts um and then the fit the miniature had been glued yeah, you know, you know, d- decently, not not seamlessly, but decently, uh, it had been glued together. And I can only imagine because the model was probably too big for their three D printer. Right. Um. So they had to print that fit, and because it's a single hull, because it's an iceberg, so they they had to put like um, banding across the deck and things to hide the um, mold joins and stuff like that. So our three D printer doesn't uh, could could comfortably print the whole thing so we took the opportunity to remove the um the mold lines and or not the mold lines but the join lines that would be on there because it was created in parts but it was also an opportunity then to sort of relook at the model and actually we thought it's not bad it's a big iceberg with with a flight deck on it um there are some things on it that because we had already been doing development work on the aesthetics for the prussian imperium we knew, for example, that one of the things they're very keen on in the background, or they will be, is that they are they they, they have a, a thing for um, modularity, and it's, it's one of the things that the so the Prussian cruisers and battleships and things there are points on them where 
and they're connected in the docks, they're connected to railways, and then large modular sections can be removed from the ship and new pieces can be loaded on. So it lets the, the Imperium, when, they, when they're deploying a fleet, they can actually customise the fleet. In the same way that actually as modelers, you would take off, you know, you might have common hulls and then you stick yeah. on different resin inserts. Um, well, the, the, the Prussian Imperium actually do that with, with, from their point of view, the real thing. They actually, like a, like a Thunderbird 2 kind of thing, they can take out the particular, you know, like the, the main weapon sections. It's on a rail system within the ship. It can then be attached at the dock. Those pieces can be unlocked and rolled off the ship, and then new weapon systems and um, and equipment and other bits and pieces can be loaded onto yeah, it. Damn their Germanic in, efficiency! <laughs> without having to build an entire new hull to do things. That so it, that's an aspect of how the Prussian Imperium works. Um, and so with the Ice Maiden, we looked at well, how can we carry this through? And it made sense with the ship that large. There is probably a rail network running within the iceberg within yeah. the within the thing so that you can get material and personnel and fighters and bombers and other bits and pieces from one end of it to the other um with, you know, within within a few minutes rather than you know six or seven hours as they're <laughs> walking around the place so so that was something we built into it so that's why the the tesla weaponry on the front is actually on rails so the whole thing can be withdrawn inside the um inside the belly of the ice maiden so then we've got shutters and things that can come down over the front because it's not going to have these tesla you know the tesla coils sticking out particularly in like high seas and rough weather and that it's going or when it's trying to make you know good speed such as you can yeah, because it, it doesn't iceberg. really have a prow it kind of just has a front doesn't it it's like yes. a brick so i can't <laughs> so, imagine they wouldn't so you, have got wet yeah <laughs> yeah so so you want to and and as those things are effectively just sort of stuck on the front of the ice on the original uh, the, the stresses and tensions that those would be, yeah, you know, so it, it doesn't matter how you want to justify it. We decided it would make sense to kind of show some more engineering had gone on rather than them. Um, as much as you like, can engineer yeah. ice. You? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, indeed. Um, and also because that then hints, you know, if they've got the blueprint for how to take an iceberg and effectively build a skeleton within it and that maybe that they're going to do that on more than one iceberg. So that the ice maiden is the first of a, of a very, very limited group of supercarriers that the Imperium is going to be deploying. So, you know, it, so for that and many other reasons, what we also were able to do is we could add more detail. Um, so we've added so like additional pipes, we've added um, hatches and um, uh, like um, RJ, can, you know, like uh, power canisters and fuel and on the deck rather than just having all fighters we've got uh, a couple of bombers are on there as well with the wings folded up and other there's other little little details that we've added uh, added to the model and um and kind of have had a think about the point defenses so again rather than the defense turrets just being kind of on the model they're now on their own little um um support platforms that are kind of bored into the ice and, and, and other things so this we, we've we've really had a proper look and a proper kind of redesign of it, not changing it for the sake of changing it, but but actually looking and thinking, well, okay, well, how, what can we do with it? I mean, we don't want to change it entirely, so it's not you know a preposterous giant chunk of ice with a flight deck on the top. It still is that, <laughs> but it's but it's also about um, you know just having a bit of a having a bit more of a, a refinement on the idea and and seeing doing our take on 
outtake on the design. So if you were lucky enough to get one of the few Ice Maidens that did come out of the Kickstarter and you pick up the the, the new the, the new version, um, there will be, you know, from a distance, they will look very, very similar. But, yeah, once you start to get close, you will see that there are a number of differences. I mean, well, I would imagine, you know, 30, 40 different design um, changes to the miniature. Um, and, it, and, and bearing in mind, the miniature itself was mastered again from scratch. So there's even the, you know, the quality of the miniature itself, uh, we hope, is um, noticeably um, better. Because, just because, you know, this isn't a case of uh, trying to measure anything, but we, um, you know, we've invested quite heavily in um in our um 3d printing uh, the technologies that we have surrounding our production in a way that because of the size of the spartan just weren't able to do i'm sure they would have wanted to have done that but they just haven't been able to do that so um but we, we have been able to do that and, and obviously we want to leverage that and make sure that we can make the best miniatures from it yeah no i'm i'm really looking forward to the possibilities for oh, the yeah. uh for the sci-fi side of the universe very excited just want to touch on, on one other thing Stuart and that is uh, f- from my side uh, again from your modus operandi kind of the way that you're behaving as a company I think is, is kind of model behaviour because you've been getting recently uh, over the past week people to post pictures on social media of themselves with their dystopian dystopian wars rule books and yes. you're going to be giving away free rule books you're going to be posting them yep. completely free physical copies yep. of rule books so just just mm-hmm. tell me a bit about a bit about that well not, not only will they be free they're also going to be uh, limited edition so we're going to create so once every once we once the promotions run its course and everybody's done their their little bit um we are going to work out how you know, how many people that is and we will then print a with you know specific covers specific design we will print a version of the book we, we did it with uh was exodus and we had the um we did the dark council edition which is only people that did that promotion um got that dark council edition of the book uh, and we're going to do we'll do the <laughs> same we'll do the same with um while was uh, with dystopian wars i mean uh, whether we call it the salty sea dog edition or what i don't know but um but certainly there'll be a uh, there'll be a a specific limited edition version of the book which we will do for the um for the people that that are in that that, that do that promotion but again it's it, it's interesting because for us it's just a bit of fun and um, we we're just wanting people to show that they're excited i mean i love seeing all like the guy there's like a guy in a diving helmet or there's a guy who just took a picture yeah who just, uh, there's a guy who p- took a picture of his cat with a load of books and yeah it doesn't really matter what the picture is one guy did, did, did a sketch of a little stick man with a load of um <laughs> with a load of little uh, um sketches of dystopian wars books saying this is me kind of thing um so one and, of the pith uh, helmet as well yeah and i think it's all yeah. that's all you had one guy who looked like he was lighting a cigarette off a blowtorch. So yeah, there's, there's some, <laughs> quite, there are some vaguely terrifying people that as well. But, um, but yeah, and so, a surprising amount of beards, or perhaps an unsurprising amount of beards. I, should say. I wasn't surprised. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. There, there's um, there's there's a lot of people um, who have taken the spirit is intended, which is just have fun, just make a bit of a titty yourself if you have to, but <laughs> just just take a picture. 
uh, with a book. It doesn't really matter what dystopian book it can be. It could be Armored Clash. It could be a leaflet. It could be any version of the rule book. It can be fleet action, um, whatever, whatever it is. Take a picture. And uh, but the, I mean, the, the most important bit is filling in the form. So actually we get. Yeah, rather than having to like do divining from your photograph and work out where you live, we can actually uh, we can get all the information we need from it. Um, so yeah, just doing that, um, and that's the that's the intention behind it was just to have to have some fun and have and yeah and fill it up with um, you know p- people being silly and kind. Of, and for some of them who've probably been posting on there for years. There'll be people on that forum that had no idea that they looked that way. You know, this. You know, I, I think it's it's the the problem with social media and forums particularly um, is the whole anonymous keyboard warrior kind of thing yeah. that can come in a little bit. Whereas I think once you start showing, we're all we're all people. We've all got either kids or we've got pets or we've got you know whatever. Um, we're all just trying to get on this little round ball of mud and, you know, and, and find a little bit of happiness in the world. So, um, okay. Yeah. We, we, we might disagree about things that we get passionate over, but really we are all, we're kind of all on the same side. Yeah. We're all and I think, aren't we? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and so I think sharing pictures of, of us all looking equally ridiculous and I keep meaning to, I need to post mine up at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, we need to, yeah, we do that and we're, you know, it, it kind of, it breaks down those barriers a bit as well, which is the other reason we do it just to kind of with the community, we're all on board, we're all on the same side and, um, and we're all getting very excited about third edition and that's what it was about. So there's going to be some people though, and I know because I've had some emails where they're like, um, go making us, um, making us like performing dogs and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, look, okay, look, I, I get why you might not be comfortable doing that. That's fine. Just fill the form in. We'll get the details. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, there is, um, we knew this when we dealt with the Exodus community that there was kind of a fairly wide range of people with, there were some things that they were comfortable with and some things they weren't comfortable with. With Dystopian Wars, obviously it's, uh, it's a different group of people and uh, because the game's different, it appeals to a different type of person as well. So, um, yeah, they, I was not surprised that there were some people that were uncomfortable with it. And, and obviously we had, you know, we were very quick to kind of speak to them. So look, don't worry about it. It's fine. Just fill the form in. It's all good. Um, you know, you can, you're not going to miss out, you know, you know, for whatever reason, if you're not able to use the social media side of it, it's not a problem. And, um, so universally, every one of those people that I've spoken to has responded really well. Um, so that's been very, you know, very gratifying. Yeah, no, no, that's that's good. That's, it's good to know. Good to know because, yeah, you do see the the keyboard warrior side of things. Uh, like you say, a lot of passionate people wanting to be heard, all wanting to be out. heard, to work, want their side in for everybody to agree with them. And of course, we, we can't have that for everybody all of the time. So. No. So we are running pretty long here, Stuart. We've kept you away from your your real life for quite some time. So, uh, any final thoughts that we've not covered here uh, that you just want to? want to give to people uh, I, I think i think we've kind of covered everything um well we haven't covered everything i'm sure there'll be there'll be people screaming at their um ipods yeah well, i don't do people have ipods these days i don't but whatever it is they're screaming at their um and their whatever thing device they're playing the podcast through going well you haven't asked about this or you haven't i, you haven't I haven't grilled this. you about exploding sixes i haven't oh uh, kind of... yeah you 
you haven't. No. You haven't asked me about dystopian legions either. So you know, no. it's, it, it, it's all it's all been good. Yeah, yeah. it's. Um, I've dodged all the um, all the hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I'm going to quickly cover those two because we just mentioned it, and in which case I will say, uh, no, we we're not going to we're not planning to kill off dystopian legions. And so, in other words, if you've got Antarctican or Prussians or whatever else figures you've got, and you want to be able to you know for the skirmish game, and you want to be able to play them. Yes, we're going to do something with them. We're just not in a position to announce it yet. It's not going to be Wild West Exodus, but it will be related to Wild West Exodus, which means that in tournaments and whatnot, you will be able to play the two um, with factions from other games together. But narratively, they are completely unrelated to each other. The um, you know, you're not going to have a lot of foreign le- you know, French Legion troops running around um, Arizona. That's not the that's not <laughs> the plan. Um, but you might have them running around somewhere else in the world and with their own. In the same way, the Wild West Exodus is a very specific narrative where things at that level are really important. Um, the that would be the intention elsewhere. Um, so we will create another tight narrative setting within the dystopian age to um, explore some other factions that's but that's interesting that's, cool. that's for another time um and and that is not in, on the immediate horizon either so nobody nobody will be sitting there clicking refresh waiting for an announcement <laughs> um and the other one you asked about exploding d6 exploding sixes um yes um I okay, again, this is another example of where I have said things in the past to to discuss things, and people have either taken that as the the final word on on what we're doing, or um, particularly if they've got their own um, axe to grind, have assumed that I'm 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 somehow being trying to be super clever, and that I have some secret secret plan that i've already enacted and i'm and i'm somehow um this is smoke and mirrors um we obviously we haven't we haven't finalized on the game engine for dystopian wars let alone firestorm um so we haven't made a decision on it um exploding sixes i like the idea of it um i I said that before um I, i do like the idea of it i think there is a danger that um taking at its most um, extraordinary version of it, particularly on a six-sided dice. It um, does happen with a f- alarming um, alacrity. Um, however, look, I-, I think exploding dice is part of is part of dystopian wars. Um, we say we're, we're looking at it, and I'm sure in some form or another there will be something like that in the game. Um, and that's not me. And just to clarify, that's not me secretly knowing that it's going to be D10s, and I'm and I'm, I'm somehow avoiding using a particular word. And it's not me knowing that we're not going to have exploding dice in there. And I'm and I'm, I'm trying to kind of look. It would be in our interest if I knew it, if we knew exactly if we had if I was if I had the alpha test version of the rule sitting in front of me, and I knew exactly what it was. I'd probably just say because why <laughs> why not. Um, but you know, we, we've still got a lot of decisions to make. We're still playtesting ideas. We're not even at the stage of completely cohesive rules. We're kind of knocking things around. So we've got a long way to go um, before we are formally going to be saying, "Oh yeah, this is this is part of the game." And actually, we hope that 
exploding D6s isn't the most most important part of whatever announcement that we make. It's, uh, yeah, it's the, 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 you know, there are other things about it that we talk about at the same time that are as exciting or more exciting. Good. Good to hear. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, Stuart, and uh, spending so long with us. I'm sure fans will have found it really useful. And I hope we can have you back on uh, on again to st- talk about some of the, the specific releases. Um, to explain yourself further. <laughs> <laughs> to explain exactly why it's exploding D10s um, <laughs> uh, in the future. Well, yeah. Well, we, you see, Wildbus Exodus does use D10s. It so, does. You know, it, I do uh, know that's a code. There's this code yeah. coming through. No. Joke. <laughs> no. Uh, I would say that, uh, you see, I'm quite confident with most of the stuff we've talked about because... This this is unless you're going to massively edit it. This is going to be like three hours long. Um, <laughs> yeah. No one's going to listen to it. No, it's fine. People, people it's, won't it's, get to this stage. Nah. <laughs> yeah, it's, they will have. I mean, unless you put in the show notes uh, the, the the rough points in the um, in the yeah, in the podcast points. when the various games get discussed. No, we never do I, that. I, there's very few people I would I would imagine unless you've got some massive die die hardcore fans. Um, but nobody's going to listen to me wittering on for three hours. This is insane. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Okay. Well, thanks again, Stuart. That just about wraps up this episode. So my thanks to our listeners out there in the gaming world for tuning in and downloading the show. If you like what we're doing, please leave us feedback on iTunes and send us any comments, queries, or requests through our blog, which you can find through Facebook or on the web by searching for Man's Model Moments. Also, please take a look at War Cradle and the various discussion groups on Facebook their YouTube channel, and also now the community forums. Make sure you're up to date with all of the developments. You know, keep clicking that refresh button. <laughs> they look- yeah, it's coming. It's coming. You just sit there. You just keep, keep clicking. <laughs> if you click it faster, it happens faster as well. So you, just, you just keep randomly hammering that, that mouse button, and, and eventually it'll be there. So good tip there from Stuart. You know, buy yourself an expensive gaming mouse. You get a, a faster click refresh rate there. That's right. I mean, the developments, as far as I can see, they look really exciting. Oh, it's I'm really exciting. massively really encouraged cool. by everything that's been happening. So uh, I think 2018 is shaping it to be a pretty spectacular year for, for gamers. Mm. And uh, I think a big part of that is is yourselves at War Cradle, Stuart. So thank you very much. And it's just for me to wish everybody a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, have a, a safe and wonderful holiday. So signing off from the Hub Systems, it's Alex. And Oscar. And I guess you want me to say and Stuart. And Stuart. <laughs> we'll see you next time. And cue music and credits. Christmas music. Christmas music. Okay, I'll do Christmas music. <laughs>